0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Kawhi. Welcome back to Kawaii, a look at Japanese horror through the ages, courtesy of YBR Presents. When we last left you, we were emaciated in the world of science fiction and its many odds and ends in Japan. But today marks the beginning of a delve into the spiritual netherworld. As every culture can attest, we are not without the ghosts that can create anything from terror to allegory. And Japan has a firm footing in this domain that has managed to capture our attention up to this very minute. Today marks a major new chapter in the grand scheme of Japanese horror, and thusly it must be treated with an equally major outing. And of all films centered around the spirits in Japan, Mosake Kabayashi's 1964 epic, Quite On, remains at the forefront of this subgenre's pantheon, thanks in no small part to its illustrious execution and its stretch internationally. But hyperbole alone won't grasp your attention this time around. I mean, we are talking about a three-hour movie you got time. You got things to do. So we need to get an expert in here to give you all the things that make it worth that three-hour time. So we are bringing back our expert upon all experts. We bring you once again our instructor extraordinaire, Rashmi Manan.
1: Oh, it's so great to be here. Woo! Back in Spooky season. We it's made crazy. it. We
0: made it to the Irishman of Japanese horror movies. <laughs> yes,
1: it, is, it is long, but in its defense, it is an anthology, so you can break it up. You don't mm-hmm. have to see it all in one sitting. That's okay. Uh, that's
0: true. Uh, we are entering a different realm of Japanese yes. horror and arguably the one that is the most popular abroad. Yes. um yes. I, however, being of a mind to normally when I engage in my horror films tend to be a little bit more uh uh american centric uh one could argue that I enjoy carpenters as uh, the finest craftsman out there haha <laughs> nice. um um and occasionally I like a good uh hooper uh to uh <laughs> jump through um or and I'm always craving something oh. um but but um I will say that uh uh japanese ghost stories are something that permeated my childhood, but they never engrossed me at that age. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've gotten older, their effect seems to be more prominent in my brain. But um, there was a huge period between in the, in the 2000s where we saw an onslaught of remakes handling mm-hmm. these idea of vengeful ghosts um mm-hmm. a la the ring the grudge mm-hmm. um uh anything else you care to name um, Dark and, water, yeah, yeah and also mm-hmm. and it's not even the inter- international or the American remakes it's also the film the original films themselves Correct. from the country mm-hmm. uh yeah. managed to break through in a big bad way uh mm-hmm. one could argue it may not be the same uh level of uh prominence that it was maybe say 15 years ago but mm-hmm. I want to know, I want you to. If you could, you give us a bit of a background as to why this subgenre is so prevalent in <laughs> Japanese culture. Why are go? What is the, what is the deal with ghosts? And do we need to bust them? You know.
1: Yes, we do need to bust them. Uh, uh, yeah, ghosts are a very popular theme, and you know, this was what inspired me actually to do this whole series, Zach, because you know, I'd heard a lot of podcasts of people talk about Ring and, and the Grudge and Dark Water and whatnot, and you know, people. People who don't study Japanese cinema, Japanese culture think that that, you know, that kind of late 90s is when all this stuff first happened. Yeah. And the fact is, these stories have been around for hundreds of years. Performance has been around for hundreds of years. You know, they're kabuki plays based on these ghost stories. Right. Um, And then films, as we look at here, films have been around for close to 100 years Talking mm. about this topic, showing this topic as well, and so that's why I thought it'd be fun to kind of go back in the history mm. and kind of get the context for these things that people, you know, are popularized more mm-hmm. uh, in the in this millennium. But yeah, so so ghost stories are extremely popular, and in fact, there are like ten or fifteen different ways to even say ghost in Japanese. You know, it's kind of that. You know, what is it? The Inuits have hundred words for snow, or whatever. Shoot. Japanese have like tons of words for ghost. And actually, if anyone's interested, there is a blog post. If you search for a blog post, how do you say ghost in Japanese? Um, There's the writer of this blog post has nicely categorized them. You know, they're kind of more yurei is the more kind of generic term. But Mm -hmm. then you get like, you know, more spiritual terms, uh, more evil terms. You know, there's all the shading to the meaning of ghost. And and the first four films or so we're going to handle in this ghost series that we're doing, Zach, are going to be actually the onryo. And Onryo mm. are the ones who are in ring and grudge and dark water. They are the grudge spirits. They're Ooh. the ones who have, who have a grudge and they're seeking revenge. Mm. And that's why they're back as ghosts. Do
0: they so have? The so they have a. Ghosts. So they have a grudge, and then they mm. put on a ring and they yeah. go swimming in dark waters. I that's gotcha. Right. I, am, I understand that's all of this right. now. That's exactly the pattern. Right. I'm yes. ready for a PhD. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: so so yeah, and we're gonna talk about Quiadon in a minute. Uh, the book quite odd that the Mm. film is based on. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute and I'll kind of, can give a little more background on some of the various stories that are in there, but, um, but yeah, ghost stories are extremely common and popular. And I think it kind of fits with some of the spiritual beliefs of the country. Uh, you know, we've talked about Buddhism a little bit, another religion that is fairly prevalent and common in Japan is called Shinto. Mm -hmm. And Shinto is, I think really comes from some of the native animist beliefs, just like, uh, the U S, uh, Japan has their indigenous culture as well. And then there were people who came over from kind of mainland Asia and combined with those folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the indigenous people, uh, the, the, they kind of have animist beliefs. And that's kind of what Shintoism is as well, which is, you know, that they're kind of spirits in everything around us, right? That, right. You know, as Yoda would say, even rocks and trees, right? So even <laughs> rocks and trees. Contain spirits in them, and the and that all our ancestors become spirits, mm-hmm. and um and so I think that kind of concept of all these spirits living around us and be penetrating us. What what I have that whole Yoda speech, right? Yes. Anyway, Uh, they're everywhere. Ghosts are everywhere, uh, and that's just part of the native beliefs. and And most people in Japan would probably consider themselves both Shinto and Buddhist. Certain ceremonies in your life are Shinto. Certain ceremonies in your life are Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's a small Christian minority, which we will talk about actually in an upcoming film because Christianity features in that film. Uh, but for mm-hmm. now, yes. So I think I do believe that part of that kind of just love of ghost stories comes from those kind of religious beliefs uh, mm-hmm. and spiritual beliefs that they have. Um, so in any case, um, yeah. So so look up look up all these ghost words. It's kind of fun to read them in the different shadings that they have. But yes, today's theme and the te- theme for the next three or four movies we are gonna be the onro, oh, the the vengeful scary vengeful ghosts, right um so yes yeah, so I'm gonna dig into uh Zach if you don't mind some of the other kind of culture and history corner points that I usually start these episodes <laughs> P- with P-
0: please do because in 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 specifically with this film uh I I want to know how something of of a nature like Qui Don is able to uh find itself amidst Japan at this current moment because this is Again, there's there's a lot of things to unpack here, not the least of which of a runtime, the way it's mm-hmm. shot, et cetera. What, what's going on in Japan at this time that allows something like Quiet on to enter the sphere?
1: So I would say it's probably less of kind of the time frame in Japan. Um, I think it's more, uh, and I, I think I'll cover this more when we talk about Kobayashi. This is Kobayashi's taste. I used to think, how did this Lafcadio Hearn book get turned into Kobayashi's movie? And well, I, actually that mystery got solved for me when I read Kobayashi's bio. So, a little teaser for later in the podcast. We'll nice. Connect those dots. What I wanted to cover first, though, was this is the first movie we're com- covering that happens in period times, that mm-hmm. happens like in kind of samurai times. We haven't really done that yet, right? Most of the, since we did sci fi as our first unit, most of the movies were set in kind of contemporary or modern or even future times. Right. Um, so, I think uh, it's worth it to just describe a little bit of some of these things that you may have seen in the movie mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, so, Uh, The appearance of a wealthy lady in Samurai times. We haven't had a chance to really talk about this. We're going to see this a little more in some of the other movies we cover in this unit. But Mm. uh, her common look was to have shaved eyebrows and then eyebrow pencil kind of drawn in in below Mm. uh, and then often veiled. Right. There's kind of a sense of kind of, you know. She shouldn't be really seen by everybody. She needs to be kind of veiled. And then married women, and I think we may have talked about this in a previous episode, but married women will blacken their teeth. Um, And I don't know if that's to kind of make themselves less attractive or what it is, but that was just the custom. And so we see a few of those ladies... Uh, in in this film, I just assumed um, and- it was
0: dental, uh, dental related. Like <laughs> no. it's like a, like it's a like it's like the way people whiten their teeth now. Back then, they oh, they yeah. were less vain about it. I don't no, know. That's what I thought. It, no,
1: it's only the married women who do that. So mm. you'll notice when you see a single woman, she will not have blackened teeth. It's only the married women who ah.
0: blacken their teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so if I if I were to listen to single ladies back in this time, it would That's be right. saying if you, you like it, then you, it, If right. you like it, then you should have blackened her teeth. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't work as a lyric.
2: (laughs) No, that's
1: probably not as comfortable. No, no. Um, We see like, you know, more of a traditional Japanese home we get to see here, right? So Mm -hmm. we talked about tatami mat rooms before, but just the bedroom setup, right? Mm -hmm. That usually you're going to lie on the ground on like a futon, right? We talked about the fact that you don't usually have beds with frames Mm -hmm. because these rooms are multi-purpose. They're used, you know, in the morning, you fold up your futon, you put it in the cabinet and you can use that room for something else. In
0: America, Um, we call that a studio apartment. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's right. So you fold up the, exactly, you know, those old Murphy beds in the classic films right it's yeah kind of that's a similar concept so you have a futon and then you have like usually uh you know here we like our fluffy cushy pillows but typically in japan you'd have like a wooden headdress so you probably that was in the a couple once again a couple of the films we a couple of the segments mm. quite on you'll see that so you kind of put your head on a wooden headdress and partially i think that's because people had these elaborate at least wealthy people had these elaborate Hairdos and stuff that they didn't want to screw up, and so they would kind of lie on this, <laughs> this headrest
0: thing. Interesting. So, so
1: that that shows up in this film. In case people are wondering, what is that? Um, samurai, you know, we 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 saw this in one of the episodes. Uh, samurai have contests just like knights. So just to keep the knights kind of active when they're not fighting, they would have contests like the one where you see they're on a horse and they're shooting arrows while they're on the horse, things like that. Um, Let's talk about the color white a little bit, because it is specifically related to ghosts. Uh, Okay, so the the derivation of this. Okay, so I have to talk a little bit about Japanese language again. So in Japanese language, we mentioned that there are these kanji characters, right? These ideographic characters, sometimes called Chinese characters as well. Um, And those characters will often have multiple readings. So this is another thing that will drive a foreigner crazy when trying to study this language. But the character for the number four is pronounced yon in its Japanese reading, but there's also, so that's called the kunyomi. And then there's onyomi, which is the Chinese reading, is she, right? Now, she also happens to be the reading for the character death. So death is shinu. Shinu is death. So that because they both have that kind of homonym, she, white kind of became the death color. (laughs) Um, So, so... Not only that, there's one more homonym. Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, so, oh, be- okay. So white white sounds like death. Four sounds like death. And so you will never find, like, uh, if you buy, like, a set of sake cups in Japan, it's going to come as a set of five and not as a set of four because four mm. sounds like death.
2: Ooh.
1: Yeah. So okay. there you go. But anyway, so that's why um, ghosts will often be, a white color and so or wearing white and mm. so that's kind of a key sometimes if you're watching a classic film and you're not sure what's happening there if that person's wearing white
0: mm-hmm.
1: they just might be a ghost
0: no <laughs> no
1: Now that's not 100 uh, percent. it's not to say that everyone wearing white is a ghost so it's not 100 it's not 100 percent mapping that everyone who wears white is a ghost mm. but most ghosts will be wearing white
2: gotcha
0: yeah, okay that happens a lot interesting okay?
1: Um, And so uh, traditionally, it's not as much a case now, but traditionally, like if a woman's being married in a kimono, the kimono would not be white because mm. white would be inauspicious. It's the color of death. Uh, so it'd be like a red kimono, which is considered, you know, auspicious color. Right. Um, okay, so that's white color. And that's just a that's just a guide, you know? So as we watch some of the upcoming movies, if you see a woman maybe in white, that seems a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she just might be a ghost.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jeff Jeff Foxworthy, <laughs> uh, for, for finding a way to insert yourself into this. <laughs> Sorry. Uh,
1: anyway, okay. Uh, So that's the color white. Um, I think we talked about, uh, yeah, let's talk just briefly about graves since we're talking about death as well. And this will come up, right? So graves, so um, cremation is most common in Japan and then you'll Mm. bury the ashes. Mm. And then people will go back to those ancestor graves. This actually happened, I think, in the uh, Yukio-na segment of Kaidan, where people go visit the graves. They'll clean the graves. They'll leave flowers. They'll pray, you know? And the feeling is that like, you take care of those graves because your ancestors are looking out from you from beyond. They're mm. helping you along. They're looking out for you. So in thanks, you need to take care of their graves. And so it's very common in Japan that there'll be seven, several holidays in a year where you actually will go visit your ancestors' grave. So typically, like the anniversary of their death might mm. be one where you get together and go see the grave. There's actually specifically a holiday called Obon. Which usually happens around August time, which is all about kind of honoring your ancestors. And so everybody goes back to their home and uh, their ancestral home, and they'll go visit the graves and, and, and stuff like that. And then New Year's often too, people will go by the ancestor graves. So, so, and if you watch Japanese movies, you'll see this a lot. So, you know, there's a Koreeda film, Still Walking. That film's plot is all about a son going back to visit the uh, father's grave in Ooh. one of these commemorative holidays. And then obviously dealing with a lot of baggage in their family as they're all getting together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, when we have like a Thanksgiving movie in the U.S., right, where all there's all this baggage in the family and you take care of it <laughs> or you get into it during that time. <laughs> kind of a similar thing. But anyway, okay, so that's As or Graves. Um, so those are some, now I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some Ah, uh, Japanese instruments, and then get into this war that's in one of the segments here. I wanted to give a little bit of factual yes, information. Yes, uh, this
0: this fascinated me, but I don't. Yeah. I feel like the film only gives me a scratch surface. Yeah,
1: you don't get a lot of it. So first of all, instruments, because that we have a biwa player in one of our segments. He's the main character in in one of the the largest segment in the movie, and um, you know, there's several common. So Japan is, you know, once again, they have a whole. Musical culture that's very different from the West, and they have their own instruments. Mm-hmm. Some of the common ones: biwa, which we saw, which is kind of like a lute; koto is this kind of wooden instrument that sits on the floor, and then it has strings that are plucked. Mm. Um, there's a shamisen, which is kind of an upright stringed instrument. Um, mm. I don't want to necessarily call it a banjo, but I guess it's kind of like a banjo. I don't know; it doesn't <laughs> nice. sound like a banjo though. It's uh, anyway. Uh, and then the shakuhachi is a flute. That's Mm. one that's very common. I think people often associate flute music with kind of a Japanese sound sometimes. Mm. Um, And then biwa in particular uh, is kind of the thing that was used, just as we see in this hoichi segment, when people would kind of tell tales of olden wars and olden days, uh, you know, kind of like like Homer, you know, like Homer would go around and tell these tales, whatever, right? You would often accompany that with a biwa. And because of that, the Biwa became kind of associated with militarism because it's always kind of telling these stories of wars to this accompaniment. Right. right? And we'll get into talking more about Takemitsu in a bit, but Takemitsu, our favorite composer, who's been in several of these movies, um, did not compose a Biwa piece until he did the movie Harakiri with Kobayashi a few years before Kwaidan Mm -hmm. because... It just was so associated with militarism, and of course, militarism was a disastrous experiment for Japan in the 1900s. And so. around
0: this time, he is experimenting more with it up yes. up up yeah. into one of the primary biwa players for uh, this this film in particular. Um, he was already collaborating at this time with a gentleman named Kin Kinchi Surata Suruta, um, okay. who was a biwa artist that was uh, that is the primary source of the music that we're hearing in this film right. right now. That's right. Yep. Um, exactly. I have a question, though, about the Biwa, yeah. though, because yep. Stephen Prince's commentary on the Criterion edition of this mm-hmm. specified that they are a blind musician. Are all Biwas blind, or is this no, just... No, 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 no. Okay. No,
1: not all Biwa players are blind. No. Okay. I think it's more... I believe Homer was blind too, right? Not mm. Homer Simpson. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Homer, Homer of like Trojan War Homer. I think he was blind as well. Mm-hmm. I think there was just this tradition of these, you know, most likely I'm guessing like if you're blind you probably can't do some of the traditional occupations in that day. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's the case now, but back in that day you probably couldn't have done the typical things like a man would do for a job. And so you would become one of these poets that goes around telling these stories of war and that's how you earn your living. Um, and right. so I think that's why that happened. I don't think it's one of those things. It's one of those things we just talked about with the white, right? It's like not all bwa players are blind, but a lot of blind people become bwa players because that became a way for them to support themselves.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause that clarified yeah. something. Cause I'm just like, well, I don't think it's, it's, I, I would highly doubt that you have to be blind in order no, to play no, no, this no, no, no. instrument.
1: It's not a requirement. It's not a requirement. <laughs> okay. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, this happens in India. I've seen this. I mean, unfortunately, to this day as well, that a lot of people, if you have some sort of uh, physical challenge that often you do end up becoming like a musician or something like that, because well, it's just a way to but earn that's, a
0: living. I don't, yeah. I, I, I'll, I mean, I, I sympathize with that sentiment, but I've also like I, having worked with old time radio nonprofits, um, uh, a good, there's a, a lot of people up in the leadership of that that are blind and it mm-hmm. ends up being the most positive outlet for them yeah. internally totally. because it does give you a sense of accomplishment Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So like, I think, yeah. you
1: know, especially in this day, right? When we're talking about classic Japan, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. For a person with a disability to be able to be self-sufficient, right? To earn mm-hmm. a living. Yeah. I think it's imp- incredibly empowering and it's great that they're able to find something to do. i mean i wish there were more opportunities available you know than just okay yeah. go be a musician because that's all you can do but but yeah it's great that they're able to have that and in fact hoichi as we hear right he actually became quite wealthy doing this right he's he popular yes. and wealthy so that's great um yeah so okay so let's talk a little bit about this Genpei war um so In Japan, when you look at Japanese history, there are kind of a couple of central points of tension that we're going to see both the beginning and the end of. So one of those points of tension is the... uh, So Japan has several islands, right? So Hokkaido is up at the top. We're going to talk about Hokkaido in a minute, actually, because it relates to Kobayashi. He was Mm -hmm. born there. Honshu is the main island. It's the one that most of the cities you hear about are on Honshu. So Tokyo is on Honshu, Kyoto, Osaka, those big cities, Kobe, all of those are on Honshu. And then there's a smaller island, Shikoku, which is kind of southeast. And then the southernmost is Kyushu. Mm. Um, And so in Honshu, there's usually the east and the west. And there's always tension. It's like a regional, you know, it's kind of like north and south here or whatever, right? Oh, there's it's kind of it's people. like two
0: it's like Tupac versus Biggie. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha.
1: you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly like that, right? Because like Osaka, I, you know, I spent most of my time in Tokyo, so you know, we all make fun of the Osaka people because they they have a different regional dialect. They speak Japanese a little bit differently. Mm. And so, you know, this guy, all those Osaka-ben people, you know. (laughs) Mm. So there's a little bit of that kind of fun regional rivalry. But this plays out in history as well because when you look at where was the capital in Japan, it's moved around. It hasn't always been Tokyo, right? So there, you know, sometimes the capital is on the eastern side. So Tokyo, Kamakura, those are some cities that have had the the capital before on the eastern side. And then in the western side, Kyoto was the capital for a period. Um, And so, you know, it's kind of this moving power between east and west is one of the tensions in japanese history um and that that's relevant to this genpei war which i'll get to in a moment here and the other tension is kind of power in the emperor versus power in like the samurai slash Mm sogan right it's kind of more of a militaristic power versus more of this kind of divine emperor power yeah so certain periods in history the emperor is more powerful So that's what happened. We mentioned in previous episodes, the Meiji Restoration in the 1860s, that's when the emperor once again became ascendant, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that was a transformation where the shogunate died and the, the emperor took off again. This Genpei War is the other end of that story mm. where the emperor's power goes away and the shogunate starts. Now, it's not the Tokugawa shogunate, which is the most probably famous shogunate in Japanese history. We're going to talk about the Tokugawa shogunate in another episode uh, when it's more relative to the to story. Um, today, we're going to talk about the Genpei War. So the Genpei War took place between 1180 and 1185.
2: Mm.
1: And it was between the Taira clan and the Minamoto clan. Mm. Now, what's confusing is these guys also have different names and different colors. So Taira is red. Anytime you saw like a red flag in this movie, it was about the Taira. They're the ones who lost this war. The Taira have another name called the Heike. So they have two names, Taira, Heike, red, all Mm. on one side. Minamoto have a second name called Genji, and their color is white. Mm. And by the way, that's why uh, the Japanese flag is now red and white. Ooh,
0: Ooh. gotcha. Yeah. Compromise. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: the, so the Taira lost this Genpei War, and then the Minamoto, it, the Taira was an MP, imperial family. We'll talk about it. They had the little boy emperor, the one who jumps off the boat. Yes. Um, or his guardian jumps off the boat with him, well anyway. she i yeah uh,
0: <laughs> i i i think this is this isn't an admirable story like like Lon Chaney cheney senior dunking his child in a cold bat of no. water to wake him up this is this is different there's no waking
1: up <laughs> out of this one no uh, but the Minamoto essentially established one of the first shogunates, the Kamakura shogunate so mm. when they won this they moved out to Kamakura Beautiful city, Kamakura. Anybody visiting Japan, go see Kamakura. It's a beautiful place. Anyway. Okay. So the decisive battle in this war was called the Dan no Ura battle. It wasn't necessarily the last battle, but it was the most decisive one. Mm. Uh, So maybe like Gettysburg in the civil war or something, right? The the decisive battle. So Dan no Now this took place um in the kind of little straits so i mentioned those islands right so there's honshu which is the main island and right south of honshu is kyushu mm. between those two islands there's a strait called the shimonoseki straits that's where this battle took place yes um and so the taira clan's stronghold was the inland sea the inland sea is just north and east of that strait that where, where this war took place and there's actually a criterion channel if you have criterion channel there's a documentary about the inland sea which is beautiful i i recommend it anyway okay, okay. in this Danura battle there's a lot of drama right so um first of all like the tides like the tides and the winds were going in the tyra's favor in the more in like the beginning of the battle mm-hmm. and then the wind shifted in the middle of the battle uh, and, and, the, and into the favor of the Minamoto clan. And I don't I'm guessing this is when this happened is when this tide shifted a major Tyra ally, sorry, a major Tyra ally switched sides in the middle of the battle. <laughs> So they're basically literally looked at which way the wind was blowing and switched sides. <laughs> and so then what ended up happening, if you can imagine, right? So you're the Tyra and like you're fighting the Minamoto on one side. Then once their allies switched sides, they started to become attacked from the back as well. They kind of got sandwiched, right? Nice. Um, and so, you know, kind of not good news for them. Um, they did their, uh, they, they lost terribly, lots of, lots of death there was suicide Mm. including like we were shown where the emperor kind of was taken into the water by his grandmother, who was his uh, kind of guardian at the time. Right. Um, and a lot of regalian artifacts and everything thrown into the sea as well. And so Emperor Antoku, who was a child, you, you see him in the, in that story. Right. uh, He he died. He died. And pretty much as soon as And part of what the, what the, you know, the, the ally of the, um, the Taira who, who switched sides in the middle of battle. Part of what they did was they told the Minamoto which ship the emperor was on. So then they could go attack that ship. And so Ooh. that's, that's, yeah, not cool. No. So that's when that, uh, that, that's when that suicide happens. And and yeah, there's a lot of, uh, so historically what happened here is Kyoto becomes less important. Kamakura becomes more important. So we have that kind of transition from West to East and then the ascension of the samurai The decline of the emperor right Um, and so kind of the cultural kyoto was a very cultural court um kyoto luckily was a city that was not bombed during world war ii so if you go to visit it now a lot of the old buildings and temples and everything are still there so it's really beautiful if you really want to see kind of that soul of japan like classical japan Go visit Kyoto, um, and I think there's a lot of nostalgia around this court that it was a very high cultured court with lots of you know music and poetry and art and all that, um, and that essentially as soon as you start moving to the east, it become becomes much more a militaristic kind of culture. And so I think that's where there's a lot of nostalgia for these Taira, even though they lost. Right. You know, it was kind of like they lost, but we lost this. this is, we lost this good thing that we had. Right. Right. Uh, And so that's why I think there are all these kind of very long poems that to this day are kind of recited uh, about this about this war. And so that's kind of culturally. Now, when we talk about kind of ghost stories, lots of ghost stories come out of this. Right. Because obviously there's a lot of death. Mm-hmm. And so there are stories about the Tyra warriors coming out of the sea, uh, mysterious flames on the ocean that sailors would see.
0: Mm. And then
1: I think they showed this in quite on, the little crabs that have the yes. On them. Yes,
0: yes, the ghost crabs. <laughs> oh, the ghost crabs. I love these ghost crabs. We'll talk about them later.
1: So this kind of war is ripe for ghost stories, right? Because obviously there's lots of deaths, so you're going to have lots of ghosts coming mm -hmm, out of the war. So that's kind of of the basics of the (laughs) the Genpei War. Yeah. So that's kind of, um, okay. So enough culture and history for today. Yeah, I don't think there's anything in particular to associate this with this time other than really Kobayashi's tastes. And we'll get into that in just a moment here Mm -hmm. in terms of why did he pick this as a subject. Themes in this movie, so, um, you know, obviously the ghosts, right? So, in particular, like, that first first story in the anthology of, like, the, the hair that attacks you, right? The vengeful hair. Yeah. Um, That's literally in The Grudge and the Ring. Yeah. Like, there are actual scenes that are exactly like that where, yeah. like, hair is attacking
0: people. Ar- arguably not as neat as what happens no. in this film. No, no, I because think much better. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's, I'm not going to lie... You, we we as a culture tend to giggle at things that are clearly yes. pulled from a string, uh, yes. but I would argue that this is yes. by far the best example of what can be right. used with an invisible string. <laughs> <Agreed>. Yeah, <laughs> it is great.
1: And there's more story around this, which I think makes it more meaningful. Yes, um, there's uh, you know some Buddhist philosophy. We'll get into that more when we do the walkthrough. But that's something that I think pervades all of Kobayashi's movies mm-hmm. um, and has an influence in future movies as well. But yeah, the ghost, the ghost, the hair. Um and then Yukiona as well, right? So Yukiona is a very famous mm-hmm. Japanese story about this kind of snow lady. Yeah. Um, there's actually a comic series that came out, Lady Snowblood, which also became a film series. There are two yep. or three Lady Snowblood movies, which are extremely influential on your good friend QT's Kill Bill. Yeah. So Kill Bill has a yeah.
0: Lot we'll, of, we'll talk uh, about Q T for other reasons later on. Yeah. But yes, Lady Snowblood, yeah. a definite influence. And so he, thusly Yukiona has yep. that influence in it. And then I
1: I don't know if you want to get into this now Zach, but anthology movies, right? Like we don't see too many anthologies. Yeah,
0: I um, I wanted to I wanted to throw out a uh, interesting disclaimer to an audience who's listening to this and wondering if it will carry if an anthology such as this will carry the same uh auspices as normal horror anthologies that we're used to in the US. There is no um overarching um, insert narrative um, mm-hmm. so you don't have John Carpenter as a coroner you don't have Mickey <laughs> Rourke as a projectionist what you have is um, the th- the stories connected um, almost as if though you are reading a book which I guess yes. the best example of this in a modern context is Ballad of Buster Scruggs uh, on mm. Netflix which carries the exact same impetus with the exception of just as you would in a uh, a Hollywood film you show up you push in on a book called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and you do not get that uh that kind of uh cheekiness with uh quite on by any stretch although authorship and uh writing are very important as a overall concept of not just the three main stories but what happens at the very end um but I I was yeah. very I was I was messaging you and I don't know if I was as clear as I'd like to be when messaging you in regards to this. Cause I guess it's better if I vocalize it. It's not that I was like surprised that this was happening. I just was like mm-hmm. the, the way this film can be this way, this film is viewed through my eyes and having watched it three times,
2: mm-hmm. I
0: feel like I am cozily sitting down with a book uh, that's yes. the feeling I get. It's not like yes. what the film is showing me. It's the feeling that it evokes, and I think part of that has to do with the way it it th- the stories interconnect thematically, and I feel like I'm getting an experience from several perspectives rather mm-hmm. than reading a straight through narrative. At which point, mm-hmm. then my analytical brain goes right. into overdrive. So it was kind of interesting to just kind of sit with this film in different auspices. Like, it it, mm-hmm. it does feel like, like, like I, I watched half of this uh, at one point while at the gym, and I had to shut it off because I was like, I can't, I can't look at it this way. I have to sit down. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting to kind of get that feeling in a way that none of the other films we've talked about have managed to achieve yet for me. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So I think this is a good point to talk about the book, actually, because it is Uh so, so much feeling comes from the book. Now, so kaidan is, so first of all, the the word in Japanese is actually kaidan. Uh I don't know how the W got inserted. Somebody told me it's for transliteration purposes, but that doesn't make sense to me because the Japanese word is kai. So I don't Uh know why we need a W in there. Who knows? Anyway, in Japanese, the word would be kaidan. Uh Kaidan is kind of like, it's translated as like a strange tale, right? Right. Tales of the weird, yeah, <laughs> you know, mysteries of the unknown, and, and I thing.
0: and I need to know now how in the world some guy from yes the ano- okay, the so Annonian Islands, right, right. yeah, Give I me- gotta
1: talk. So Lafcadio Hearn, super interesting. You know, I remember back in like second grade or something. I don't know if you had this in your school, Zach, but there'd be these like little activities you could do. And there'd be these little cards. They'll have like these cards that kind of have the stories of interesting people from history, like Helen Keller or whatever. Uh-huh. And for some reason in my school, they actually had a card for Lafcadio Hearn. So I remember wow. reading about him in like second grade or something. <laughs> but yeah, I know. Um, for Paul's name is really memorable, right? It's a, it's a memorable name. It's not a name you hear every day. So know I mean, Heard that name, But anyway, super interesting guy. Yeah, we think he was born in Greece. Um, he's definitely of mixed ancestry, but we don't have all the, you know, it's kind of a little bit, you know, I think he's part Greek, uh, part, he lived in Ireland for a long time. I think he, maybe he was partly Irish. He lived in France. He lived in the West Indies. He lived in New Orleans. Now, keep in mind, this is like in the 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just like, oh, get on a, a cheap flight and go somewhere for spring break kind of world. No, you know this says I mean? you st- took a lot of effort and you yeah. stick
0: there for a while. You're not yeah, going to leave too easily. Of- yeah. This
1: is the age where you still would bring like letters of introduction or something when you land in a new place or something. You know, it's, it's just a very different world. The fact that he did so much travel mm-hmm. um, in New Orleans. I thought it was interesting. He worked as a journalist in New Orleans. And at the time he was married to a black woman um, mm. and he actually lost his job because of that. He was fired for miscegenation. Ugh. Whatever. Anyway. Yeah. So a very, very forward thinking man. Uh, very open to all these cultures around him. Eventually, I don't know if it was directly after the New Orleans incident or not, but somehow or another, he found his way to Japan. And he fell in love with Japan. Mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know what happened to his, the the wife in new orleans she was no longer the picture because he did marry a japanese woman when he got to japan he converted to buddhism mm-hmm. he taught at waseda university keep that in mind we're going to come back to that that's actually the link to kobayashi so we'll get there in a minute but he taught at uh, waseda Is like the harvard of japan there are three prestigious the three most prestigious universities in japan are mm-hmm. waseda Keio. And Tokyo University. Did they so also the kind
0: of... have a uh, a Mark Zuckerberg equivalent? Was there a social <laughs> network made at this? There probably
1: is now. I haven't really <laughs> tracked it, but yeah, I mean, all the people I... <laughs> who run the biggest companies and biggest uh, the big politicians, all of them typically come from those three schools. It's just ah, kind of, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Now I yeah. need
0: Japanese social network. I need the I need that movie. <laughs> um...
1: Actually, you could do one about that uh, Masayoshi Son. There should be a movie about him. Ah, he's very he's very interesting too because he, he's actually of korean ancestry and some of the fact that he's become so powerful in japan is a pretty interesting story yeah nice. anyway um okay so back to so he taught at waseda uh and i will once again remember that i'm going to link that in a minute um but that and so as part of you know he really got into kind of these cultural studies in japan and what he did was he traveled all around japan and just collected all of these stories now of course he did this not speaking or reading Japanese, uh, his wonderful wife, whose name is lost to history. I, I don't know what her name is. Uh, I'm sure I could find it somewhere. But uh, in any case, she translated for him. Mm-hmm. So she's, you know, really, in my opinion, an equal contributor to all this. Agreed. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, that's how these stories came together and came to be kind of codified in a book that was also published internationally and became Uh, somewhat popular for its day. And so it's very unusual, right? We've talked about how Japan, you know, isolated by geography and then isolated by policy. And so the fact that like a foreigner could come in and be the one to codify all these stories, I think is really interesting. It's very unusual that would have happened.
0: I find it interesting from the perspective that we do have an American equivalency to this would be uh, Chandler Harris and the way he Huh. I would say not so much collected, but stole stories from African American slaves and turned sure. them into Uncle Remus tales. Um, thi- this gentle- this gentleman we're talking about, seems far less of an asshole by comparison. I think he,
1: I don't. I don't think Japanese people saw it as him appropriating it or mm. stealing it because he remained in Japan that whole time. Yeah, I know. That's why uh, I, I think said. They he's, saw- yeah, yeah. yeah. It's,
0: it's that's why I say the difference is Chandler Harris stole. Love Connie yeah. O'Hearn yeah, adapted. Sure. Appropriation. And- yeah, yeah,
1: there's a lot of appropriation. That is true. That yeah. is true. I don't think that's what he was doing here. No, I think he was just kind of he was working in kind of cultural studies and and that kind of stuff and fiction writing and whatnot in. uh in Waseda, and that was just one of his research projects. Is like, just let me go collect all this. It, I it, think this is yeah. more akin to when you had white professors from places like Harvard who went down to the South and recorded blues music, mm. and they didn't necessarily do it. I think in an exploitative way. It was more in a let's 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 record this and make this available to everybody. It's let's a, keep track of this. Let's add this to our archive so we don't lose this as it, part of it's our. It's a cultural culture. heritage scenario. Exactly. Yeah, I got exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's probably what more what I would link it to than the appropriate it's, side. It's
0: it's anthropology versus opportunism. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So these stories, I did read, so he made several of these collections of stories. I read the one that's actually called Kwaidan. Now it contains yukiodna and the Miminashi no Hoichi, the, the Biwa player. So those, the middle two stories are the ones from Kwaidan. And then there, the black hair story and the, <laughs> the last story with the author in the, author in the barrel mm-hmm. um yes those two stories are in other collections that he's done mm-hmm. but quite was really interesting you know what it reminded me most of is like creepy pasta you know like yeah. nowadays we <laughs> these creepy pasta right they're very short stories they're very spare I, to see what kobayashi came up with what was on this page really was stunning you know because mm-hmm. there's not all that richness and level of detail in the description of You know, they're just like stories, like one person, like urban legend type of stuff almost, right? Like once upon a time, Mm -hmm. there was this woman, uh, you know, there's one like, like a wet nurse who wanted to die to save her heard the baby that she nursed you know and and she died and then they buried her ashes and then there was like this beautiful cherry tree that grew up where she was buried and you know (laughs) milk would come out of the flower
0: in a lot of in a lot of ways it carries the same uh the the same auspices of pulp novels from pulp writers but the difference is you have a lot more mythology and context based around the history of japan as opposed to say like uh, like like uh, bla- the Black Mask detective series, you know? Yeah, what I'm saying? less
1: pulp, more like folk tales, kind mm-hmm. of folk tales yeah. meets creepy pasta kind of thing. There's very much an urban legend kind of, just that feeling of like these are stories that were just passed from one person to another, kind mm-hmm. of feeling to them. Um, and so in the miminashi story, Hoichi is not a monk. I don't know if he's necessarily implied to be a monk in this in the in the film, but I just wanted to clarify that in the story anyway, he's not a monk. He's just a, a musician he didn't really have anywhere else to live so the the priest at the the temple said you can come live with us mm-hmm. um and the story itself has a little bit more of kind of like the ghosts actually the 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 Tyra clan ghosts kind of respond to him more like he can hear them talking we don't really see that in the kwidon movie so that's just a difference there um Yuki Onna in the story, they have 10 children Ooh. in the in the story. Jesus. And then in the story, she goes up. So Japanese, traditional Japanese homes, what you would have is you would have like a hearth in the middle of a, you know, have like a big room and like a fast roof and there'd be a hole in the roof. And that hole was for the smoke from the hearth to go through. Mm. So basically in the middle of the room, you'd have your fire and that's to keep the room warm and also to cook on. And right above that, you'd have a hole in the roof for the smoke to go through. So that's where she goes up as she turns into mist and just goes up through that hole mm. uh, in the story. Um and occasionally you'll get a laugh cardio her editorial comment in some of the stories as well, which is kind of funny. But they're they're a fun read. They're all over the place. Some of them are very gruesome. Some of them are more spiritual. Some of them are almost slightly humorous. Um they're yeah. a fun, you know, just a fun, very light read, you know, nothing really deep about it other than like that that cultural history that's in it. So right. yeah. Um,
0: I, yeah, go ahead. I, I was gonna I was I was just gonna say like I find that it, it the way the the way that the stories are constructed um with me need, needing to still read Lafcadio Hearn's book um down the line here, I'd love to take a crack at that now, having watched quite on a couple times uh i I feel like I feel like it, the the stories themselves, regardless of how. Uh, Kobayashi is telling the stories. They they feel ingrained as if though I kind of knew them my entire life. Like they, mm. there there are some stories in some films. Mm-hmm. Even if you've never heard the story, yeah. you feel like as if though it's been around you this whole time. And I and yep. I I would attribute it to common tropes of allegory yeah. that have existed from here on to now. We just have a, other cultural auspices of receiving the mm-hmm. information. And they, these yeah. story, each of these stories felt like 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 when you're i I mean not to go back to classroom aesthetic from when you're a kid but like if you hear a story that uh carries some form of a lesson or some kind of introspection i think it tends to stick with you uh all throughout your life regardless of how much more information you ingest and Mm -hmm. there's just something about this that felt like quite on always existed as Mm a movie not just as a Uh, a book like it yeah i i feel like it it's a film that i feel like even having seen this for the first time for this it's almost just like well this this must have been with me my entire life just because it it has that familiarity attached to it based on the stories we're receiving um uh but
1: I mean, folk tales are like that, right? There's so much in common in folk tales uh, across cultures. I mean, obviously there are differences, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of things that are going to be common, right. right? You know, tales told to told the children to yes. make them behave, or, mm-hmm. you know, don't go in the forest. There's scary stuff in there, you know, that kind of stuff. It's common in all of the tales around the world, right? right.
0: So yeah. how does a book by this American slash Grecian slash Irish, Irish <laughs> uh, gentleman Get yeah. in the hands of Kobayashi. What 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 is the... And who is this Kobayashi? I don't know okay, who the so hell he yeah, is. Yeah, let's dig
1: into him. Yeah. So I do want to note... So Quite Honest by Lafkari Hearn, the second book I read for this is called A Dream of Resistance, The mm-hmm. Cinema of Kobayashi Masaki by Stephen Prince. And Stephen Prince, as you mentioned, Zach, does the commentary on the Criterion uh, yeah, disc as well. correct. He's, he's a big Japanese film scholar. He has a book about Kurosawa as well, if anybody needs to read more about Kurosawa. But anyway, um, so... Uh, I, I will make the Lafcadio Hearn connection in a moment, but let's just, I'll give you kind of three things to remember about Kobayashi. So first of all, um, he is an artist. So, you know, we talked about like Ishiro Honda, who he went to, Honda went to film school, right? right. Uh, Kobayashi went to art school. That's mm. what he studied. He studied art. He studied sculpture. He studied writing. You know, so he's he's an artist. And we will get, to, I mean, you're going to see that in Kwaidan, right? Like, totally there. But that's one thing to think about him. He's an artist. Um, he uh, is very much anti-authoritarian pacifist. Mm. We've seen that. We talked about that with Seijin Suzuki and we talked about with Honda as well. Uh, I think all of these men who grew up under the militarism and World War II and kind of disagreeing with what the, you know, what the, the direction country was going in. Right. Um, but I think Kobayashi probably felt, I feel like he almost exhibits this most strongly just because this is in almost every film he makes. This is a theme. His his um, middle
0: finger speaks louder than other ones exactly. I've seen. I, I definitely exactly. see that. Yeah. Yes.
1: And then the third thing is his fascination with spirituality, particularly Buddhist spirituality and Christian spirituality. Not so much like he's a religious zealot or something. I don't think he even considered himself to be religious. Well, like yeah, he's and very i very fascinated with the thinkings, right? I don't yeah. think yeah,
0: I don't think a director like I I I never get that sense when I watch if I, if I watch a movie with religious connotations done correctly, I never feel like the artist is banging you over the head with a lesson. I feel like they're mm-hmm. Attracted to the concepts and themes in that idea. Exactly. That's the difference between making like a movie like silence versus making something like God's not dead. Like there's a, there's an elegance the to silence something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There's an actual yeah. understanding of the text as opposed to just blindly receiving a message. Exactly.
1: Yeah. exactly. And that's, that's where Kobayashi's coming from. He's fascinated by the thinking and the philosophy. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really considered himself to be a religious person. Um, so those are three things. If you only take away three things about him, those are things to take away, but let me give you a little more background. Uh, he was born in Hokkaido near Sapporo, which is the kind of main city in Hokkaido. So Hokkaido, we talked about earlier when we talked about beer gardens, because that's where the beer comes from. Mm, um, mm. But Hokkaido, to me, I got a chance to visit it actually in kind of a wintry season. And it looked like to be, it looks, it's the most Midwestern part of Japan. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs>
0: it's,
1: it's flat. There are a lot of wheat fields, is there, red
0: bars. Is there a Paul Bunyan statue attached I to it know, at I know, there, some should, point? Be. there oh. should be. There should be. idea, idea. We get a GoFundMe going. We get a statue <laughs> there. <laughs> you
1: know, I would not be surprised if there's one somewhere already. I, I seriously mean that. <laughs> but anyway, um, so he was born there. Now, like Kurosawa, he was born to a wealthy family, kind of from samurai ancestry. Uh, he had two older brothers, a younger sister, um, very privi- privileged, loving, supporting childhood. Had a good childhood, Aww. although it was marred by the fact that his mother passed away when he was twelve. Oh, no. Um, and Stephen Prince, he loves talking about film, ang- like angles of shots. He's very fascinated <laughs> by that, and he kind of ties in that you know Sapporo has a very it has a mount. It, there are mountainous regions around, uh-huh. and so he talks about like Kobayashi really loving these high angle shots. Yes, uh, yes.
0: Yeah, he and he the way he utilizes them for yes. the purposes of certain elements of the imagery and his emphasis in the film. Like I will say, like, as much as Stephen Prince's commentary felt a little overbearing at times when listening to it, his his observations on the angles and how he's telling this story of horror were mm-hmm. interesting to listen to in the respect of how it pertains mm. to what we understand of this film and also what we understand in our own horror language today. Like it, it definitely Bear, it bears importance especially when he is conjuring up stories regarding the z-axis uh which i found mm-hmm. fascinating um mm-hmm. but also yep. he is he 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 carries a lot of uh, i think the one thing i love about kobayashi's imagery in this movie is how he's shooting snow like it's yeah, so wintry
1: scenes so yeah. so as i mentioned hokkaido is the northernmost; they do get snow it's it's it's, mm. a, it's a cold part of of japan and so, wintry scenes. He said himself, Kobe said himself that he likes to put wintry scenes in his movies mm-hmm. because that, that's his childhood. That's where he grew up. So, yeah, we get a lot of that. And Yukiona is just so stunningly beautiful what he's done.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, it, oh so anyway...
1: Goes off to school. So as we mentioned, Waseda, kind of Harvard of Japan. So he goes there uh, and Waseda is in Tokyo. So now he's coming up from Hokkaido into the big city. And a couple of big influences happen from there. First is, he starts visiting film sets and his his cousin is Kinio Tanaka. And we're going to actually talk about her more when we talk about Ugetsu. Mm -hmm. But, Um, she's an amazing woman, not only a great actress, but she actually directed some films, kind of like the Ida Lupino of Japan in that in a classic Mm -hmm. era, there were very few women who were directors and she was one of them. So we'll we'll talk about her more later. But that's his cousin. So she would take him along to film sets and he's kind of like, hey, this is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second is his kind of teacher, his main teacher when he was at university named Aizu Yaichi. Yes. And Aizu Yaichi was a student of Lafcadio Hearn. Boom! Yes, there you yes. go. There's the connection. So that's why Kobayashi was kind of fascinated by Lafcadio Hearn's stories because there's that connection. His teacher was Lafcadio Hearn's student.
0: There yeah. you go. I love. That's I it. I love how. Uh, I love how that creates a pattern of influence down the line. Like I I always enjoy that aspect of it, and I I, I am fascinated by like a gentleman who of all the people we've talked about he is not the one who seems like he is the one that seems the least interested in film initially, but then mm-hmm. grows to appreciate it more. Whereas like uh, literally in our last episode, we're dealing with a director that literally was like engaged in every single art form in every yes, single possible it's true. way. That's yeah.
1: true. Teshigahara also really into art. That's true. Yeah. But these two, you know, I have to admit this just a side comment. I, I would say like for me personally, obviously I'm biased because of my tastes, but I think if I had to pick like which country has the best looking films just average for me, it's always going to be Japan. I think the cinematography, the look and feel, that kind of artistic mm-hmm. feeling and and the, the just the beauty of the film, I just think Japan is amazing. I feel like there's um, better
0: variety. that's what mm-hmm. I've so I've noticed in watching all these films thus far is that there's better variety. And there mm. seems to be less of a house style by comparison that's true i feel th- I feel like they've just had the benefit of not just having a film industry but also off to the side creatives and mm-hmm. uh, seemingly unlike Golden Age Hollywood, they have a better ability to reach outside the norm. Even yes. further back into what we consider that golden age period,
1: it's true that that art can be business as well. Exactly, right? yeah. That it doesn't have to be like, oh, art film. Nobody's gonna watch that. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> the, the 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 Japanese culture thankfully lacked a yeah. Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, I yes, totally understand. Thankfully, that. yes.
1: Yeah. Who was the Ars Gratia artist Shh. person?
0: Doesn't yeah. matter. Doesn't is. matter. Yeah. Yeah.
1: exactly. Um, So, yeah, so with Aizu he studied a lot of kind of Buddhist art and sculpture and particularly that of Nara. Nara Mm -hmm. is another kind of historical town near Kyoto, also survived bombings. So once again, you can go see a lot of these older buildings there. And Nara is famous for there's a big temple there with a huge Buddha statue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like a there's like a deer park near it, deer park. In traditional Buddhist canon, there are four famous places for Buddha, the place he's born, the place he became enlightened, the place he taught first, and then the place he died. Mm-hmm. And the place he taught first is is called Deer Park in India. And then they made a little deer park in Japan, in Nara. And there mm. are real deer in it. Deer that are actually quite aggressive because they've gotten used to people giving them stuff to eat. So Oh, oh I of, thought it was because- Beware I,
0: of deer. <laughs> I, I thought it was because they had hunters killing their mothers. And so therefore- they had no. to always seek revenge, which is something that Disney no, did No, 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 in. no, no, oh, okay. no,
1: They're, they're friendly. They just want to eat your oh, food.
0: So. I want <laughs> vengeful deer. I want vengeful deer. We oh. we killed too many hey, of them. Hey, let's
1: make a, okay, okay, here we go. I got it, Zach. Uh-huh. You know how, like, they made that Winnie the Pooh horror movie? Bambi's got to become public domain. <laughs> we got to make a vengeful Bambi
0: story. Oh, oh, yes. Vengeful Japanese ghost Bambi. <laughs> I want this movie so bad no, Bambi's now. Bambi's
1: mom would be the ghost. Bambi's mom is going to be the ghost. Is, I can was, can
0: yeah. Thumper be a zombie? <laughs> sure. <laughs> zombie
1: <Why> rabbit. not? <laughs> yes. I love it all. Oh,
0: my God. Right. Disney, you thump. hear that? We're coming for your legacy one film that. at a time. <laughs>
1: um. <laughs> all right. So then, uh, so he graduates, he joins uh, Shochiku in 1941. And mm-hmm. what is happening in 1941, Zach? <laughs> um,
0: uh, 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 in- infamy something days, happened. infamy days. Yeah. yeah well, uh, Japan was at
1: war long, yes. Japan was at war long before that, but yes, uh, war going on. So of course he gets promptly drafted. He gets sent to Manchuria. I actually think he was in the same regiment or something that Honda was in, but in any case, <laughs> uh, they're all over there. I don't think they met. Uh, nothing nothing he, that I he, heard. He gets, a, he gets a
0: look at Honda and goes like, God, this guy looks like he's way too obsessed with lizards and fucking giant moths and whatever. Like <laughs> <laughs> This guy's fucking weird. I'm going to stay away from him. <laughs> That's
2: right.
1: So he was drafted and sent to Manchuria, but then he was supposed to go down to Philippines. Uh, and and really by kind of later stages of the war, going down to the Philippines was kind of a death sentence because Japan was clearly losing the war by then. Mm, mm. Um, and But-, but Because of American submarine activity, they actually physically couldn't get down to the Philippines. So he got rerouted to an island near Okinawa. Mm. And so, you know, we can kind of just just twist a fate is probably why he's still alive today, because he missed out on both the Philippines and Okinawa battles, Mm. where there's a good chance he would
0: have died. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's but, interesting yeah. to think of one wrong turn puts you, to, like, yeah, changes I film know, history. Right? It's exactly. definitely a butterfly effect. World War II is, Very like... so. But, but World War II is the weirdest butterfly effect that exists in film history. Yeah, you twitch- that's
1: why. <laughs> that's why war is so tragic, right? Because when you think about all the people who died in that war, I mean, you know, there could have mm. been people who cured cancer and made amazing art and, yeah. you know, just amazing people who we lost. Yeah, um, so war is bad, people. War is bad.
0: It's, it's good uh, for absolutely nothing say it again yeah so
1: that's exactly what kobayashi thought deeply anti-authoritarian authoritarian authoritarian, deeply anti-war he even during the war was really working on developing compassion for the victims including you know when he was in this near island near okinawa there was a u.s pilot that crash landed there and all the other japanese soldiers were like beating him and he was just kind of feeling very sorry for this man Mm -hmm, Um, yeah he did spend a year in a prison camp at the end of the war, so he kind of was delayed in getting back home to war. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, this is this is kind of like you know when I read when you read about Otto Frank, right? Anne Frank's father, like, yeah. how did he even get back and start? It's kind of a similar thing. Kobayashi returns home. He learns that his father, his eldest brother, and his best friend had all died mm-hmm. during this mm-hmm. period. I mean, I, I just don't it's just amazing the amount of tragedy people had to process all at once. It's the, the, and it's white and
0: it's widespread worldwide. You have people like yeah. Willie Wilder going yeah. down overseas to film. And in the process, they go to village, go, go to visit the village they uh, emigrated from and to find that it's completely decimated. Oh, and that virtually your there. entire family yeah. is, emas- uh, is, yeah. is eviscerated because of the yeah. Holocaust. Like unbelievable. it's, it's, a, yeah. it, you know, it, it it bears mentioning, and I'm sure we've talked about this in brief before, but the war, the war is probably responsible for more artistic drives uh, po- uh, in in its post years than mm-hmm. any other influence in film period because of the way people walked away from it, and I would argue even in a far more brutal way than World War One had um, Im- yeah. implemented its some its stamp. Because of the amount yes. of realism that results and also the amount of surrealism that yeah. um, emerges as a result and they, and they come in tandem and I, mm-hmm. I feel like kobayashi's kobayashi's uh, even with this being the only film of his I've seen i I, I feel a lot of pain from him in the film yes. I, I uh, like yes, there is and, and, yeah. and it's thankfully it's not like it's not angry. It, it, no, it's definitely it's
1: sadness. It's just a sadness. Yeah. Right? There's definitely
0: yeah. some, there's definitely a bit of like a drive that could be considered mean when you consider the endings of a lot of these stories. But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's mean for the sake of being mean. You know what I'm mm-hmm, saying? Like mm-hmm, it just, mm-hmm. it's tragedy that visually can, can be read as mean, you know? Mm-hmm, um,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he returns to Shochiku. Couple of interesting things at Shochiku. He's made. He's made to be an apprentice under Kinoshita. I'm going to mm. talk about Kinoshita in a minute. Um, but then uh, we covered this in a previous episode. Zach, the the guy running Shochiku is a man named Kido, who was once again convicted war criminal. uh, from the war and kido was much more of a kind of militarist patriotic type of guy mm-hmm. and so you can imagine someone with kobayashi's leanings was just constantly fighting with kido and that's going right. to come up later when we talk about some of the production issues but anyway um so they were always fighting uh, now kinoshita interesting so i think i mentioned kinoshita last time in that you know he was kind of that mitchell lyson style gay man of that era mm-hmm. in that he wasn't like openly, you know, he wasn't John uh, Waters gay, as I mentioned, but, you know, the people who knew him knew that he was gay. And, ma- and he ma- made
0: made some Japanese Jack Benny movies. Yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: and um, Kinoshita was also, he wasn't as openly antagonistically anti-authoritarian as Kobayashi, but he tried his best. He actually did go to war, but his service ended early because he was injured. So he got got sent home, essentially, Mm. uh, after some injuries. And so he went back to filmmaking. And, for example, I've seen some of his wartime films, but they kind of very slyly subverted authoritarianism. So I think I saw... I think the film is actually called War. I have to look it up. But anyway, there's a film where at the end of it, it's, you know, it's meant to be this militaristic film at the end of this film. Like all the boys in the village are getting sent off to go to war and their mothers and fathers and everybody are lining up for this parade on the street. And they're all waving and cheering and right. you know, militaristic governments. Right. Oh. Sons don't belong to mothers. Sons belong to the state. Right. And you are meant to be excited that your son is going to go fight and maybe die in war. Remi- right? That's it, an honor.
0: It reminds me of that scene in Letters from Iwo Jima when they come to announce that the baker is going to is is being enlisted. And there's right. like a look of forced happiness on the face of the exactly. people delivering the news. Yeah,
1: exactly. So the way, you know, just subverts the scene because the militaristic government, that's what they want to see. They want you to just see that parade. But Kinoshta brings in the mother of one of our main protagonists, one of the main characters. The mother is just running after her son and crying. Oof. And that's not what a fascist government wants to see. No, right. But no. he did that and he got away with it. Right. Because obviously this was propaganda. You know, this was a propaganda film. Mm-hmm. But he did little things like this to kind of subvert where he could, where he could get away with it. Right. right. Um, so I think Kinoshta was a good mentor for uh, Kobayashi. And and his films are great, too. Maybe one of these days we'll cover one of them. But anyway, Mm. um, so Kobayashi gets promoted to director in 1953. His first feature film is called Sincerity. Around the same time, he married an actress named Fumio Chiyoko in
2: 1952.
1: Mm. Um, And so because... He didn't, Kobayashi did not make any propaganda films during the war, right? So like I said, Kinoshita, Kurosawa, Mizoguchi, all of them did that, right? Mm -hmm. Kobayashi was at war, so he was not making films. And so he could kind of get away a little bit more with making anti-fascist, anti-war films, Mm -hmm. right? Because He never made those propaganda films. So he had a little more credibility kind of making these anti-fascist films. Yeah. Um, And so I think I mentioned in one of our previous episodes, he has a three-part, nine-hour film called The Human Condition, all about anti-war, featuring our friend (laughs) Tatsuya Nakadai, of course. Um, Oh,
0: we'll get to Nakadai. We'll get to Nakadai today
1: great yes we will (laughs) and then in fact he made 11 films with Tatsuya Nakadai so they were buddies Um, and and then Harakiri I'm not going to get into Harakiri much today because I love this film it's my favorite period Japanese film I'm hoping we may cover it together someday Zach so I will not cover too much about it other than to say that Harakiri was his breakout for a film he broke out internationally and critically he won the special jury prize at Cannes and Harakiri is a film that is set in samurai times, but it is really excoriating fascism Mm -hmm. and kind of a rigid adherence to certain codes. Mm -hmm. uh, And that really, instead of that, what we need to do is develop compassion for each other. That's what's more important. And that's kind of the message of the film. But we'll dig into that later because I think it's just a, it's an amazing film.
0: But anyway. And and, uh, Harakiri is influential for Kobayashi in the element of stylization. He had. Exactly. He said this in 1993 for the Directors Guild with uh, Masahiro Shin- Shinoda. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, "After Harakiri, I wanted to take the idea of stylization one step further, and I chose quite on as the perfect, mater- yes. perfect material for that." Now, for context, Harakiri, he said he had the idea that he wanted to try in every aspect of the production from direction, production, design, and camera work to achieve stylization, and he succeeded to a certain degree. So quite On is the next step of stylization. Exactly. Um, imagine, exactly. imagine, imagine you can actually take this into sort of a Tarantino realm. Imagine Reservoir Dogs and then suddenly shifting to Pulp Fiction. That's kind of like a, a, a degree turn yeah. or a, even Pulp Fiction to kill Bill. Try, try mm-hmm. like working with that dial twist, and you're suddenly mm-hmm. suddenly seeing something far more... Uh, I would want to say it, it. I I I, speaking as somebody who's gone through the filmmaking process, it feels like you are trying to pre-plan this more. By comparison, mm-hmm. like you are you are yes. actively trying to construct a painting rather than. Hoping yes. the painting shows up on the canvas. You know?
1: Exactly. You know, we talked about like New Wave last time, right? New Wave mm-hmm. is all about run and gun in the streets, all realism, all you know. Things we're, that we're give, get out of the studio. Things, this things is that give Hitchcock
0: opposite. a heart attack. Yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. Because
1: just like with Hitchcock, uh, you know, um, Kobayashi started quite on trying to make it outdoors. But he had all these specific colors in mind, because remember, he's an artist, he mm-hmm. wants to generate these specific colors, and he just could not produce those, because as the light would change outside, the color would change, and this and so was he couldn't his, control it.
0: And this is his first color film, too, so he yes. is very, very concerned, and when he is wanting to make sure, like, don't fuck this up. <laughs> exactly.
1: exactly. So so I think I mentioned to you, right, for me, this film is like Red Shoes, right, The mm. the... Mm. Um, Powell Pressburger. It's kind of like that use of color, the stylistic use of color.
0: I think I share that sentiment because I like the red shoes, but I I gotta tell you, I, I in a lot of ways I adored looking at this film more than oh, the red I shoes. Love, well,
1: I, once again, I'm biased. I love this so much more. Whenever t- anybody tells me about red shoes, I'm like, you gotta see Cuadra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's. I, yeah. I, I think it's a definite. There's a pop and a vibrance to this film that we'll we'll dig into more detail. But like, yeah. I I I i I wonder how much of kobayashi switching the gears on this, how big of a leap was this for him? Do you have any insight into that per se um, like in how terms of- in terms of moving from a samurai epic to something of a horror nature like you're switching you're basically switching genres in- and yeah. But
1: they're both period films right so mm, we're still kind of fair. in that era mm. so i think like if this were modern day maybe that'd be even weirder because this is still a period film we've got the period costumes we've got the period language we've got the period look okay you know? and, right. and in that that in fact i think you know prince talks a lot about his kind of oblique perspective and how he would like flatten screens just like the traditional japanese scroll paintings and so um I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't think it's a, that much of a jarring shift. I mean, there's a lot of stylized nature to Harakiri as well. I mean, it's black and white, so it's different. It's a it's much more sparing look, but um, I don't think it's that big a jump. I don't think it's that big a jump. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. Um so, yeah, so, so because of that, they had to use, like, a airplane storage facility or disused airplane storage facility. They need a room big enough to be able to do all this. Yeah, I uh, have a –
0: uh, the hangar is a, a 1,100 yards long and 88 yards wide, and they are setting up cycloramas running the entire length painted yes. with the backgrounds on it. And that yes. that is cool from the perspective yes. of what you end up seeing in the final frame, because yes. I, I, and, and in a lot of ways, it's like sort of a Walt Disney esque ambition for this thing. Yes, yeah. It is
1: It, it is that kind of very fantasy feeling to it mm-hmm. because you were enveloped by it. Mm-hmm. And it's this huge building that needs lots of light and energy. The people working on painting the ceilings were like scared of dying. They fell down. <laughs> That's how big this place is. Right? Um,
0: this this anger is cursed.
1: <laughs> Way over budget, mm-hmm. uh, and he was lent from Tochiku to Toho, Toho to make this film. So we see some of the Toho actors here. Yes, um, yeah, as part of the cast. Mm. Uh, he actually ended up having to borrow. This is kind of the Coppola story, right? He had to borrow money from Kinoshita, and he sold his house. Oh, to finance the film.
0: Oh, oh, I uh, the that story, that story of uh, so like uh, the. I, I, I wanted to interject on that because the budgeting situation on this yes, floored man. me. So yeah. he, he kind of works in tandem with Toho on this. They put up 100 million yen. He gave us 30, and he said they gave us 30 million yen for each segment that was completed. And at the end, they had put up 100 million yen. That's how it came to cost that much. For context, The Human Condition cost 60 million yen, and that's three films total. So yeah, you are but it's
1: pretty grungy. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty and
0: grungy. they uh the story of how he uh, he he calls up his friend and goes "Uh, uh we, they were shooting Hochi the earless segment. Uh, and that's when it happened. But we needed money to keep going. So after giving it a lot of thought, I called Kenosha and I explained the situation and asked him to lend me 10 million yen. He replied, I could lend you 10 million yen. But you'll be sorry later if you don't take 50 million instead. And he wired me 50 million yen right away. And I handled the money from then on. All the expenses necessary for actual production. At the end of each day, the crew would come to me for money to prepare for the next day. Uh, I I love that idea of calling up your friend and be like, "Well, I could give you ten dollars, but you're gonna be very very upset if I if you don't accept the fifty I'm gonna give you." I'm like, "That doesn't what a nice happen."
1: Nice teacher, right? Yeah, like, he was kind of his teacher mentor. They got along well. It's that, good. It's good to hear that. That's yeah. a
0: very solid like nice story about it. But I also like I do find it interesting the idea of of because it's an anthology you break it down into a budget not each seg- each segment's not going to pro- like theoretically cost the same amount and yet he is kind of working in this box that yeah. I don't think I'd want to work in no. given like you it, your budget would ideally be predetermined by assessing every story in that anthology and thus drawing up the cost According to that, but Toho is kind of saying like, Nope, make it work somehow. And that doesn't end up working either. Not the least of which also because Ninja club, which is, I have, I wish I knew more about this. I I don't know how much more you learned about it, but it seemed like they were like some kind of an irresponsible startup. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I, don't... I
1: think it was wasn't it Kobayashi's kind of company that he was using to produce this I don't know I could be wrong
0: Like I I, I didn't get a clarification on that but it, like he said something in regards to I don't know if I had made the film if I had known about the circumstances beforehand Ninjin Club had borrowed money for various reasons I think it had to do with paying stars salaries they borrowed money from Shoku, Shochiku since the film was to be made there but when Shochiku pulled out they wanted their money back so Ninjin Club worked out a deal with Toho So that sort of dealing had gone on. So he's kind of thrown into a shit show, but he sees the artistic drive within him to go, well, I still have to do this anyway. Um, I I could tell you right now, if I heard all those things up front, I would have been like, nope, nope, find somebody else. Nope, not worth a headache. Nope, nope, nope. Props to Kobayashi. For stepping yeah. in and going like, no, I can make something out of this. Like, mm-hmm. no matter how much of a headache I'm gonna have yeah. down the
2: line. Yeah,
1: it is unfortunate. We'll come back. I have some notes at the end here about kind of how this impacted his career. But yeah, mm. it's 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 a little bit sad, right? We the work is amazing. It's completely. It's one of the you know probably top twenty Japanese films ever made. It it sounds like a it's, it sounds yeah. like a
0: heaven's gate situation. Um, eh, it's a better movie than
1: Heaven's Gate. I mean, I like Heaven's well, Gate. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Heaven's Gate is as much as a disaster oh, it, as people say
0: it is. It, no, but, it's, yeah. it's, it's not, I, not even in terms of like, it's more just in terms of the circumstances and like what you yeah. perceive as like a bomb compared to, you know, yeah. a film that actually does have merit, you know? Um, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So- you know uh, Prince gave us some of his comments about the film he talks about like the you know I love the credits where you have the kind Mm. of kanji characters and then there's ink going through water which looks so beautiful Mm -hmm. Um, and he talked about it as kind of Kobayashi kind of playing with form and the formless because the ink is the formless and the kanji is the form uh, which also ties to you know in the Hoichi story when they're writing all the sutras on the on Hoichi's body Mm -hmm. the sutra that they're writing is the heart sutra and the heart sutra is a Buddhist sutra and it's very, very, very popular in Japan, Mm. uh, very central to Zen Buddhism. And the first line of the Heart Sutra is form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Mm. So there you go. Right. Anyway, um, he talked a little bit about some of the stories that were changed, that black the the black hair story. Uh, I didn't read that one, but he said that in the Nahern story, um, it just ends with kind of a poignant night that they spend together. And then he discovers that she's actually passed away. She, there th- isn't that it was Kobayashi that turned it into that vengeful spirit. Yeah,
0: it's there is no as he points out, there's no vengeful spirit and that that emphasis changes the entire story like which is so exactly. interesting because they it it, is. if you if you ended it what five minutes earlier you're dealing with a different story entirely and it's not Ooh. even i don't know if you'd even consider it a horror story more so yep. like a a, a a
1: poignant love story and a, yeah something ex- like that exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. It just happens yeah. to
0: have a ghost you know <laughs> exactly yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah i agree um And then that eye imagery in Yukiona, right? And then Mm. part of that maybe kind of Kobigashi is that, you know, that kind of anti-authoritarian kind of comment about political surveillance and Mm. social power and somebody's always watching you. Um, So that's kind of a little bit of that poking through, Uh, you know, did she take the sandals? We don't know. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Oh, that shot Uh, is brilliant. I'm sorry. We'll get to it later. But yeah, that shot's brilliant. Yeah,
1: Yeah, we'll get. I'm just mentioning these because they're all from this Prince book that I that I talked Mm -hmm. about. Uh Yeah. And then, um, yes, Surata Kinshi, I think, is a woman who is an actual Biwa player. Anyway, we'll call them they since we're not sure. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Um, then, um, yeah, meditation on power, similar to Harakiri, right, In, in, in that Hoichi story, because there's obviously those Taira clan people who are exerting their power on this poor musician, right? And he can't even see them. But there is that sense of like... If you were just a musician in that era in Japan and a powerful person comes to tell you, in ask you to play a concert, you don't say no. No. Right. Because no. that that's the power that's there.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, the ears in the story are a little bit more believable in the story just because you don't see them. Right. When you watch the film, it's so obvious that his ears don't have characters. On them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah.
1: Uh, and then the the kind of the the militarism, the brutality, and the militarism of the Heike, the the, the good old tyra, right? That mm-hmm. that definitely comes up. Yeah. Um, and then um, there's some comments on the cup of tea. You know, we can talk about that when when we get to that film. But anyway, the, this film is in this film also won. A special jury pies at Khan.
2: Mm-hmm. and
1: then he returns back to Shochiku and is promptly fired. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the head of the studio hated Kobayashi. They did not get along, and yeah. this is an excuse to fire him because he went over budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and his next film is called Samurai Rebellion, also a fun film to watch. And it's the first production of Mifune Productions, our good old friend Toshiro Mifune. Nice.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. I like that. that. Yeah. Well. It, I, I'm getting shades of our Suzuki discussion too out of this, uh, based yeah. off of yes, like the exactly. idea of just like finally an excuse to toss him out. Um, yeah. It's, exactly. it, it's a That's shame exactly. that he didn't have the grounds for a lawsuit the way Suzuki yeah, did. I know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, I think Suzuki was a little further along in terms of the collapse of the studio system. So Mm -hmm. maybe he was able to do it then may not have been possible now. But yeah, so independent productions kind of became his way. Mm -hmm. uh, Going forward, many of his films continue to be associated with the war. Uh, ends with a couple family dramas and documentaries on art and history he goes back and does an art documentary about his teacher and about the Buddhist sculptures of Nara definitely a lot of ups and downs lots of disappointments and the limitations on his filmmaking yeah that pretty much happened after this film right because after this film he couldn't really get good budgets anymore to do what he really wanted to do and and then he died of a heart attack on October 4th
2: yeah
0: and we'll and uh, near the end of our discussion, we'll talk about the fate of Koyaan as a result of um uh, as a result of all of these mitigating factors because the if you think that the story of production is interesting, the story of how it was rescued is 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 even more interesting. It gives right? a lot of perspective to Japanese, uh, the Japanese film industry and its ability to preserve. Um, yeah. I I will say too, we uh we're dealing with a production that. Uh, I think it's best to describe like the hierarchy slightly just for a minute about how the AD situation works again because sure. not everybody might have listened to our discussion from high and low on the mm-hmm. regular Ballyhoo feed. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's an interview on the Criterion with Kiyoshi Asaka, uh, uh, ogasawa uh Ogasara, um, and uh, Kiyoshi was an employee of the Ninjin Club, the company that made the film. This was his first film where he worked on the set as an AD, um, and because he was new, he was the fourth assistant director. Now, assistant directors do not operate the same way and same principle that we understand an AD to be today. An AD generally on a film set today, or at least from an American auspices, is there to essentially corral the, uh, corral and make decisions that the director does not have time for. These are logistics. Uh, these are elements of wrangling extras, things that need to be addressed but should not be at the forefront of the director's mind. The AD situation in Japan um, not only does that, but it also breaks down into second assistant AD, which you can have in America, third AD, and fourth AD. And these hmm. lower tiers are designed to corral the various different departments, which I found incredibly fascinating. They're ultimately spe- uh, uh, serving the vision of Kobayashi, but they have a leveled tier system. In the case of Kiyoshi, Kiyoshi's uh, situation uh, was corralling, amongst other things, the makeup crew, uh, mm. <laughs> which definitely has a, a bearing on this film, to say the absolute least, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he uh, he actually he said this about um, um of what it was like to do his job. You could say he has to um uh, when it comes to involving a setup scene, for, setting up a scene for a day. You could say he has to serve as a kind of a leader. He prepares a day shoot and conveys the director's wishes to the various section heads. I was responsible for costumes and makeup. I would convey directions about costume and makeup for a given scene to the actors. I'd get the actors ready, send them on set, and make sure they were on time. But because it was a period piece, preparing the costumes and makeup took a lot of time and work. I did everything to ensure that preparations were completed quickly. Now, not only are we dealing with... A messed up budget situation. A studio that doesn't fully care about what you're doing. Uh, you are dealing with a period piece on a budget that requires as much meticulous detail as possible to compensate <laughs> for anything you are lacking in your budget. So, uh, if I were an AD on this set, I would have banged my head on that hanger mm. wall for five <laughs> hours because I don't understand how you could deal with this and you're having to anticipate days shooting in tandem with constant makeup changes from several different sections as it pertains to creating a ghost that sucks <laughs> uh that that has got to be a pain in the ass so props to Koyashi for uh K- kiyoshi for creating a wonderful uh um uh, a uh, unification and getting Kobayashi's work done amongst the other ADs that got involved with it. But Rashmi, do you think it's time to finally talk about these stories?
1: It's only been an hour and a half. Let's do it.
0: All right, break it down for us. We've got a yeah. lot to talk about lot. so
1: let's let's go story by story because as we mentioned before there Woo! isn't like a super connection between all of them right? no and no no uh, on a host we don't have like all of these are on one theme no, they're definitely the... related themes but you know i think it's too much to try to tie all of them together so no,
0: it's, the the it's mcu this is not <laughs> it's not
1: it's not so yes some of the most beautiful credits I think I've seen in a film. It's really just stunning. A very mm-hmm. sparing score by Takemitsu.
0: I was <laughs> genuinely shocked at how clear the picture was on this opening so sequence. Beautiful. It looked like it was so shot with an Arial e. Alexa today i don't know how
1: they did it yeah Mm, yeah yeah Yeah, it looks beautiful but yeah it makes me want to just sit down one day with a with a bottle of water and some ink and just have fun you know because it looks amazing just
0: go nuts against some white paper and you're all set
1: (laughs) um so yes form and formlessness which is kind of a theme in some of our stories here but anyway uh yeah so the black hair so we start with this kind of overgrown decrepit house it's mm-hmm. it's not in good repair no right where we're, i mean it, and this is i think once again we talked about kobayashi being an artist and i think so much we get so not a word has been said and yet we understand so much just from these opening shots right yes. That like this was a once great home but it has now fallen into disrepair mm-hmm. you know yeah like these are people who were wealthy once but they're not wealthy anymore and everything's kind of going to pot you know yeah, yeah. it's kind of so so nothing's been told to us you know we don't have the whole like you know voiceover from rebecca or whatever telling us about manderley we, we know <laughs> what's happening just looking at it right although the <laughs>
0: although the camera movement is very similar and the way he's yeah. moving in on this house he has it from that high angle and he's almost mm-hmm. looking at it as a as a fantasy story already or some kind of yes. a fairy tale uh that's about to go to pot uh it, it's it was very like interesting the way he uh bookends the this uh, like certain elements of a thematic closure within this doorway um and the the uh, any pristine value in this is far more decrepit down the line because of the uh, of how it becomes even more in disrepair uh right. I I was just very I was very charmed by the way it starts on a very still aesthetic mm-hmm. before we get inside that house like it allows yes. us to we are enveloped in the environment and we are exactly. settled into the environment. And That's each right. of the shorts do, does do this, by the way, they a do very so way.
1: much of this, this mood, this, all the parts of this movie are mood, right? Mm-hmm. It's making you feel like you're in this weird fantasy world. Uh, and I think so much of that is the art design, the production design, the music, uh, the sound design, you know, all mm-hmm. of that is kind of just bringing you into this world. Right. And even if it's not your culture and not your history, you still kind of understand what's happening here. right? Um, So, yeah. So we have a samurai. Um, I'm not going to get into too much of samurai history today because we've already had a history lesson. But in a future film, we will talk about kind of the ups and downs of samurai living. But, you know, there are periods in history where samurai are making lots of money and doing great. And then there are periods in history where they're not. And then this is Harakiri actually covers that, too. This is another situation where we have a samurai who... Uh, He is, you know, he's just not making the money he used to.
0: Yeah. It's like the housing. It's like the housing market fluctuates over time.
1: (laughs) So this is the thing, right? In peacetime or if your lord maybe had been defeated or co-opted into a new administration, Mm -hmm. then you as a samurai, you're not doing so well anymore. And so he basically has to leave home. to distant lands for work. But there is also a sense that he just feels like the life he's in right now just isn't good enough for him. Yeah. He's better than this. It's not good. We very much get that sense because I think that if he really wanted to make it work in this current home, he could But he just feels like it's not. He was born to be more. I broke.
0: I I, I broke it down into a quote. Yeah, our marriage isn't producing anything for my career. I'm gonna marry a government daughter. It's not you. It's me. Shitty me. Like yeah, yeah.
1: exactly. And. And, and this complimented by the wife who's just crying and I, begging him to stay. I and, couldn't
0: handle that. Like, it, it really painful. broke me to watch that guy make that painful. decision right at the beginning. I'm like, don't stop it. Like, no.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's super painful because yeah. she's such a beautiful, devoted, loving wife. Mm-hmm. And he just throws her away Yeah, and and leaves her with. You know, the problem is, right, women don't work outside of the home, especially a woman of a higher class. And so she has no means of support. Once he leaves, I
0: mm-hmm. mean,
1: it's it, she, you, we see her doing some of that weaving. You know, she's doing a little bit of weaving to maybe make a little bit of money. But she's in, she's not going to be in a good situation.
0: No, no, it's, not at all. And in fact, her, her performance is uh, I- incredibly sharp for uh, for a horror film in particular because it is – this is a genre where you are expected to very much sell insane concepts i and on mm-hmm. a, on a surface level and this form of uh this form of performance it, unlike when i see it in a drama i feel i feel the intent far more strongly because mm-hmm. we're already starting in a place of pain and mm-hmm. there is it's an unapologetic rejection from him that feeds mm-hmm. into her performance and get, lends it the credibility it deserves
1: yeah, I mean, why is she going to be a vengeful ghost? This yeah, why, right? exactly. Set up. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so he goes off. He marries into a new rich family, and you can tell that that woman, the woman she marries, woman he marries, is very materialistic. Loves going shopping. Loves spending money. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It's not a good marriage. Yeah.
0: He no. Off. No. He I just. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I got the feeling at first that like, oh, this new wife is just just some kind of vainglorious nonsense. But in her defense, he also is flat out ignoring
1: exactly. her. Exactly. <laughs> yes. No, he's a terrible husband. In both of these cases, he's oh, a yeah. terrible husband. And all he does in his second marriage is basically dream of his first faithful, hardworking wife. And yeah. to to her. And, you know, obviously a parable here, right? You mm-hmm. know, about the, you know, you never appreciate what you have. You should have gratitude for where you are. You should be present. The, narrator,
0: the narrator literally says, the samurai did not understand the value of love. It was the rashness of a young man suffoc- suffocating from poverty. Um. Yeah. Don't don't make harsh decisions in your twenties. It doesn't fucking work out. I'm just gonna throw that yeah. out there. Um. But uh, there is uh also uh, th- there's also this element of as he's going through this new marriage, where we are treated to some fantastic editing, uh, yeah. specifically with the archery sequence. Yes. Oh God. It, it is a. Like, the the energy that you think you feel from a Robin Hood movie is, like, cranked up to 11 here.
1: Totally kinetic. Yeah. kinetic. Yeah. Yeah, really great scene. And the yeah, way
0: right. he is intercutting down to the first wife. And uh, Prince talks about these angles a lot because he is such an angular dude. He's
1: an angle man. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> when he sees angles, he goes... <clears throat> I know some people are
1: ankle men, some people are
0: yeah, angle men. Some people are, some people are feet men like Quentin Tarantino, and some are angle men. Um, but he uh, talks about the way he is filming uh, the wife, the first wife. And there is a lot of like, it almost feels like in a way like each cut is playing with a different angle that will then be used in uh, a less... A, a less erratic vision down the line in a horror film. He's playing with mm-hmm. these camera angles and and the z axis yes. specifically, and in the process, he is creating a nightmare for this husband. Yes. He is creating yes. a nightmare that he has to experience while dealing with the gallop of a horse and the flip of an arrow. Like it is definitely like mm-hmm. a very caustic scene in a mm-hmm. story that I would argue relies much more on slow grief by the end of it it's the it's it is very much the ramp up in your mind like how clouded you feel when you think you've made a terrible decision like it's it's so fantastic and Mm -hmm. additionally it does this in this scene and in others but there's a lot of crossing the line here uh for for people who don't know what the line is uh, it's a 180 degree axis you're supposed to stay on one side of that line when maintaining any camera movement unless you actively set up an establishing shot to change that angle. Uh, People who cross the line from a modern context are generally doing this to convey disorder uh, not the least of which is the Matrix which does it all the fucking time in that first one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. In this film he is using it to that same effect we are establishing disorder and chaos. By crossing that one eighty degree axis. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, the uh, I I I was also kind of struck by the way he's communicating dialogue scenes because, as Prince pointed out, and this happens very significantly when uh, the samurai makes the decision to leave this second wife. He uh, he is doing conversations where people are further away from each other and he thus changes the leveling on them. Yeah, yeah. I I
1: think uh, Prince also talks about how he uses like this oblique perspective where everything gets flattened. Mm -hmm. And so he's not using traditional like 3D perspective that um, no, that's typically used in Western cinema. No, right? and, But yeah. if anything,
0: that lends also to the painterly quality like because you, exactly. you you do have yeah. a flat image and canvas to work with, um, mm-hmm. not the least of which also what you choose in shading and definition. He, mm-hmm. He's creating mythology on, on, mm-hmm. on film, which is very mm-hmm. very very fascinating to watch unfold in such a raw form.
1: And I think the great thing is, even if you don't study film theory or whatever, there's a feeling that these segments give you. Mm-hmm. That Maybe you don't realize, oh, that's happening because he's crossing the 180 line or he's, you know, editing it in this way or he's using this perspective. You don't know necessarily the technique, but you feel
0: it. Yeah, there's an there's a overarching feeling that I had with this film in tandem with everything that I've talked about before, which is the first time I watched it, I was immersed in the stories. The second and third time I watched this is when I started really actually seeing the mm-hmm. filmmaking aspect mm-hmm. of this. And mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is I started seeing the strings the so technique. to speak. The yes. And, yeah. and 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 in a sense I feel like in in a very positive way it gets richer the more I watch it, but I never can go back to that first time I was enveloped in it mm-hmm. and experiencing it as the dr- the dream slash nightmare he is evoking. But I think that's a be- that's a benefit though because you are you are able to rewatch it and find new things within it. But I will say that that first time, it's yeah. it's much special. it's much more special. Yes, because you are you are believing the backdrops Mm -hmm. you are believing the camera angles it's it's
1: just very immersive storytelling it's Mm -hmm. beautiful storytelling and now that i've read the stories they're based on i mean once again this is a rare occasion where the film is better than the book like he has done so the book is very spare very little in terms of detail and mm-hmm. setting you setting a scene and everything, you know? Yeah. The, the book is very much like, and then this happened, and then he went over here, and he said this thing, and then that happened. <laughs> and, you know, like that, I
2: mean, I'm
1: exaggerating, but that's what the book is like, right? It's like, you're like not me describing this... a
0: movie. Yeah, <laughs> I got <gotcha. laughs> yeah, you.
2: Exactly.
1: You're not getting this beautiful world that you're just pulled into, mm-hmm. and that's all Kobayashi and his team.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, Amazing. But he...
1: Yes, so he rejects his second wife. Yep. Yes. He turns and... home. Mm -hmm. all it's more overgrown we get back we we get back to that
0: doorway shot but it's from a different auspice it's from the it's from the opposite point of view the -hmm. house is watching him now we are not watching the house this
1: house is alive we're gonna see that (laughs) this Mm -hmm. house is yes so uh yeah so he's walking in yeah very nice some very nice shots of him kind of yeah coming in through and um His wife is still there, still weaving, still loyal. And guess what, Zach? What? She hasn't aged a day. (gasps) Oh,
0: Oh, she must be using one of those things you get from an 800 number. I heard they actually work. Yeah, like de-aging. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Everything you were sold- In the cosmetics world does make you 10 years younger. There you go. Yeah.
1: So, you know, very minimalist in sound design, very minimalist in color palette, other than just those cloth the cloth she's weaving is very colorful. So I think the look is so interesting, right? Mm Because everything is so washed out. And then there's this cloth she's working on that's just super colorful.
0: And it's not and it's not just the uh, um it's not just that element to the lighting schemes Mm -hmm. in this piece are so fantastic. In the dreams prior, when he's dreaming about her, we have uh, these, these push-ins that fade the background out while emphasizing her and vice versa. When he comes back into the house, everything is despondent and downtrodden and drained of energy and color, except for that one section he remembers in his mind, which is her weaving. Yeah. That is such a remarkable little... Yes element mm-hmm. of lighting that I love in this scene
2: yeah Oof, it's Just fantastic
1: stunning stunning yeah. technique in the furtherance of a beautiful story so yeah so um, yeah so then he's kind of like oh I missed you so much please forgive me I'm so sorry and mm-hmm. then she's all like oh I'm not worthy <laughs> you know, yeah uh, this kind of humility contest here and then praises her beautiful black hair
0: oh mm-hmm. he shouldn't have done
1: oh. that <laughs> So, of course, they spend the night together, and then in the morning, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> turns her over, and it's like, uh-oh. Yeah,
0: yeah, which is the reaction is my girlfriend dead. has every morning. I know. It's a, we're, <laughs> reaction... So- yeah, every, t- every morning, she's like, ah, skeleton! No. Yep. oh, it's Skeleton just, with it's white just, hair. Oh, it's just Zach.
1: Yep. <laughs> skeleton with white hair, and then looks back, the black hair is back. Mm-hmm. Mm, but the body is gone! <laughs>
0: yep, and uh, that hair comes alive.
1: Yep, so then he begins <sighs> to age rapidly, and the hair attacks him in that wonderful freeze frame at the end, and then the house is falling apart. I mean, it's just... And, and,
0: and we are treated immediately in this first two the sound design in this yes. film, which is uh, Takamitsu yep. in tandem with his music is creating these sound effects, but these sound effects, much like the way- land we are living in, are disjointed. They are not synchronized. They are creating a delayed effect. It creates mm-hmm. a mood. Uh, mm-hmm. It is, and, in a weird way, like I, I've, I was able to listen to some of this without watching the image and just listening to the sound effects and just listening to them on their own create, An atmosphere that isn't predicated on the imagery. Uh, No, it's
1: super unsettling just by itself. mm -hmm, Exactly. Like you
0: could, you could play, you could do AI where you remove the dialogue, just have these sound effects, and play this at your Halloween party, and have it just be mood, mood setting, uh, tone. You know what I'm saying? Like it Mm -hmm. could definitely play into that category. Um, So by the end, but by the end of this like story, we find ourselves. Uh, immediately affixated to the vengeful ghost motif which carries throughout this whole piece that's right and i i did i almost wondered like i don't think you can do this properly but like like if i were to let's say i took quite on and stuck it in uh, adobe premiere and if i were to cut out that final section and really emphasize what Lafcadio Hearn was telling in the story. Mm. I wonder how well it would work in comparison. I don't know if- it I don't would...
1: think it would work as well. No. I don't.
0: I, and I think that might speak, that also possibly speaks to Kobayashi's uh, meticulous nature because he has, if you, if you read about him or like listen to his interviews, he sounds about as detailed as Hitchcock. And I would, I would be shocked if I learned that he wasn't basically filming for the edit. Um. Uh. Maybe not to fool a studio per se, but there seems more intent, and it feels Agreed. like if you lose a section of the f- of the piece, the whole thing collapses almost. It's I like agree. a it's like a Jenga tower. It needs to look yeah. that beautiful, but one one little log it will will collapse the entire thing. Yeah, I
1: agree. I think especially since this, you know, obviously it was chopped up in many ways, and I know I know you'll get to the release in a bit. Yeah. but you know, it was chopped up in many ways on release, but. I feel like as an opening story, right? You want to set the mood. You want Mm. to set the scene. Like this is about vengeful ghosts. This is a horror story. Yeah. So if you miss that black hair at the end, like, it's not as horrific
0: <laughs> yeah i wrote I wrote down to a thought here because we are a horror podcast at this point now we are we are, we are based in America, and I'm just going to throw this out there. The black hair could kick the shape's butt, and I'm a fan of the shape uh, but mm-hmm. the black I hair agree. could kick Michael Myers in the ass I know that's and what I think that's what they need in these Halloween movies is the black hair
1: <laughs> I think you're right, Zach, that I think what Kobayashi succeeds in doing here is the hair is not comical mm mm no. It, I mean, you're scared of that hair.
0: You know what I think? Because it
1: has all the spirit of that woman who was abandoned
0: yeah. for no good reason. Yeah, you know? and I and I think Takamitsu not yeah. Mickey-mousing the score helps yeah. too. The fact that he is restraining himself so intently it reminds me too of like it's not the best specific example but the birds accomplish this, this too where this is not about bernard herman making a score it's about right. bernard herman creating a mood and right. and takamitsu is doing that in a far more restrictive manner in on purpose and mm-hmm. i i think that like and also it's the way it's filmed too like the the hair in the edit almost feels like you've never seen it move before. It almost feels like an instant quip over to the, to the wall. Uh, it, it never feels like he's not lingering on it. It's almost like, if anything, he's using editing and readjustment of angle to connote how terrifying this is, rather yeah. than relying on, it's. I mean, the exact opposite of maybe like the Tingler, where that Tingler is yes. clearly moving, and yes. and uh, and William Castle wants to to savor every moment that that thing's wiggling and waggling on a string. Yeah, yeah, I
1: agree. Mm-hmm. It's partially affects partially all the mood by set by everything, and then partially the the storytelling. Yes, right. Yeah, we believe like this poor woman. Like, look what he did to her.
0: Yeah. And as you said, the um, the story ends on a freeze frame and it says executive producer Norman yes. Lear, and everybody laughs. And, no, no, I'm <laughs> um,
1: yes, yes. Uh, uh, a, a, an appropriate freeze frame. I thought it was a well earned freeze a, frame.
0: Agreed, yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So we go on then to Yukiona, the woman in the snow.
0: Mm-hmm, so we yeah. have our
1: two woodcutters, the <laughs> older. Older woodcutter, Mosaku, and then Minokichi, our younger woodcutter, who's supposed to be 18, but he's probably 30 in the tr- cinematic tradition, of it do- course. It right? doesn't
0: matter. Yeah. It's all Nakadai, and I got to tell you, know, Rashmi, we've, we've, we've dealt with Nakadai a couple times here, I and, I'm, and I tell you right now, for some reason, watching Nakadai walk around trying to carry wood, I suddenly understood, <sighs> heartthrob, oof, ooh, he is handsome. I wasn't noticing a, that in he's high and low. A, well,
1: he's, a, he's a good actor, too, right? Yeah. Like, he I is. think when you see good actors. Like, if they're supposed to be handsome, they mm-hmm. look handsome. If they're supposed to be kind of shabby or whatever, slubby, yeah. they look that way. Like, you just feel it just by the way they carry their body. And- mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. no, yes.
0: But yeah, yes. um, and we are, not only are we brought into their plight, but we are brought into their plight in a big, bad way. Like, yeah. I, I have not seen a snowstorm uh, no. a, a conjured up in a studio this horrific since watching Rudolph the Red Rose Reindeer. And, like, it, it's- and
1: the snow didn't look fake even though of course it is fake it looks really real
0: it feels simultaneously real and unreal in certain places because of how the foreground and the background are established but it all feels authentic that's it's the difference between uh, realism and authority yeah um yeah and
1: yeah so it's Spooky, it's atmospheric. Mm-hmm. Yes, amazing snowstorm done in this airplane hangar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and then once again, that red flag. So, red, right? I- I'm not saying it's necessarily referring to the Tyra clan here, but that is kind of, you know, we will see it later in Ho'ichi. If you're thinking about kind of visual cues mm-hmm. that go through yeah. red. Yeah. yeah. So a red flag in the snow, which is meant to be the flag where the kind of boat where you cross this body of water mm-hmm. takes off from is that red flag. Yeah. We just see that once again, you have that washed out. Everything's white in this one red flag, just like we saw with the weaving, you know, the the wife with the weaving and the mm-hmm. very beautifully colored cloth and everything else is kind of very drab. So, um yeah, I mean, I just over and over again in this, I'm just like, yeah, Kobayashi, you know, he he's an artist. Like he got his degree mm-hmm. in art. He wrote his thesis about the sculptures of Nara. You know, yeah. he's kind of really into this stuff. So yeah, so we see that red flag, and then it's kind of a little abandoned hut there where the boat, the the person who probably you know the the person who runs the boat here probably yeah. hangs out. Yep, our uh, and because it's yeah. so snowy, the boatman isn't there, mm-hmm. and so they go in and they're kind of hanging out. Yeah, and then.
0: Ah, the Yuki-ana. Oh, Yukiana shows up now.
1: Yep. yep. And I don't really know all of her story, but I noticed her teeth were blackened, so I guess there's a Mr.
2: Ooh.
0: Mr. Ooh.
1: Yuki. Not a uh, not, Yuki not, Otoko somewhere.
0: You, Rashmi, yeah. you don't just notice it. There's a close-up <laughs> of her opening her mouth, and it freaked me I the know. fuck out. I I, I I, I. There's a couple of different things going on in here, because first of all, she lets him, she lets, uh, she lets... Uh, Minikichi Go, yeah. uh,
1: so so we see her breathing her frozen breath onto Mosaku, right? Because yes. he's an old guy, yeah. And then kind of, it's implied, I guess, also kind of sucking in his soul. While
0: d- yeah, they they directly alluded to uh, uh, identified yeah. as a vampirism, more or less. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. But then, yes, Minokichi is a a cutie pie, and she just kind of takes pity on him and finds him attractive. Oh, Timothy Chalamet,
0: I'm going to suck the life out of your father, but you're so cute, I'll let you live. (laughs) That's
1: right. So because he's a cutie pie, she decides to spare him as long as he never says anything to anyone.
0: You know, that sounds like very simple instructions, Rashmi. Almost feels like it would be very hard should not just follow that instruction after yes. you've seen but, a fucking vampire, right?
1: But does anybody in any movie ever follow those instructions? Of course not. No. <laughs> Once you tell someone not to do anything, the first thing we want to do is that thing. So. Uh,
0: uh, the uh, Yeah, and uh, after she gives that little warning, I love this because it's, it's a combination of blocking and what our mind is bringing to it and camera, uh, uh, not camera angle, but camera placement. Because she starts off looking as if though she is floating, and Mm -hmm. then as we reveal her feet, it -hmm. almost seems like she repositions the speed and she runs out the door. Mm -hmm. And it's this lovely thought, because we we definitely know it's a ghost. There's no denying that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But he's playing with the idea of what we think a ghost is versus what a ghost might actually do. Uh, I don't know how else to explain it, but watching it where it feels like she's floating and then suddenly you see the feet, it's almost like he's peeking back behind a curtain. I don't understand the intent necessarily of doing it. I just know that it fascinated me as somebody who's used to looking at a ghost and having Mm -hmm. them just like go right through a door. (laughs) You know, like it was just a very... Nice speed of it. And it's the same speed at which Quentin Tarantino shoots somebody like Lucy Liu rushing across a table to behead somebody at the other end mm-hmm. of the table. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, she lets yeah. him go. and let's him go.
1: But, you know, he, it apparently takes him a year to recover and start working again. Um and so mm-hmm. after a year he's then back out in the forest mm-hmm. and he meets an orphan woman.
0: Yeah, an orphan <laughs> woman. Uh, an orphan. And guess what her name is? Yuki. Hey,
1: um, and, I and, seem to remember somebody else with that same name. <laughs> yeah, and
0: and by the way, the way he edits from uh, Minakichi gathering wood in the forest to the wide shot where the where Yuki is just there. Mm-hmm. That I didn't notice that the first time. I didn't realize <laughs> that. I my brain told me no, no, mm-hmm. no. There was another shot where she enters frame. Nope, it doesn't. And that's your mm-hmm. first clue that something's not right. <laughs>
1: she is possibly, maybe she's a ghost. Yeah. yeah. If, if
0: you yeah. are a woman who randomly appears in the middle of a forest, you might be a ghost. <laughs> so, <laughs>
1: so so yep. Her name is Yuki. Uh, beautiful yellows, reds, and pinks in this in this scene. Uh, and Zach, I thought of you because there were a couple of gratuitous boobies there.
0: Yeah, why did you think of me when you thought of boobs? <laughs> I am a boob in real life. No, again, I, I think for for anybody who doesn't uh, who's listening to this kind of series for the first time, I I'm shocked that there are uh, frontal shots of breasts. In movies this far back, because American cinema has taught me that that didn't happen until the seventies. Uh, so, but uh, yes, no, yep. they and they take so a add ro-
1: that to the counter, and they take a <laughs> they
0: take a little roll in Zahe or the Golden One yep. hay, so to speak. Um, right, and, and then,
1: uh, they have three children.
0: Oh right. Oh yeah. Not just not just not just that. After they are rolling in Zahe, there's a hard cut to Parenthood. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like a hard exactly. Cut, hard yes, cut in the exactly. edit. Right? Yep. Uh,
1: the three children and once again just like the previous story mm-hmm. she never ages
0: yeah second clue sherlock villages are like uh, uh you know she has not aged physically or changed <laughs> or, or aged or physically changed since birth and that is impossible um and uh, i and i love a, good, a little bit of village gossip uh, as per our, our wolfman discussion that was released not too long ago um and there is a uh, a scene of domestic bliss, where exactly. So I wanted yeah. to just
1: comment on this really quickly because what's interesting to me in this relationship, as Kobayashi shows it, is is it very much seems like a relationship of equals. Um, very often in Japanese movies, particularly portraying this time, there's clearly the superiority of the man and and the inferiority of the woman, mm-hmm. but. You know, this couple, I mean, it seems like a modern couple, right? They're each right. kind of doing their work. They're supporting each other. Yeah. They have a really good marriage. Mm-hmm. They're very happy together. You know, it seems like an unusual relationship.
0: Yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't fully take that into stock, but you're right. Yeah, it does it's it's a stark contrast, especially from the first story we were getting, where everything's a st- uh, assembled around the concept of, all right, uh, this wife's not working out for me. Time to move on to another one that exactly. has more b- benefits attached. Um, yeah, it is a very c- uh, consummate equal relationship, uh, and he's making sh- slippers for her. Yes,
1: Man. yes.
0: Shoot, not just that thongs. Use and the word phones. yeah. And the kids,
1: too. Yeah. The, kids in the Yep, yep. So that's their
0: New Year's present. hmm um, And, uh, oh, Minakichi. He just could not shut his mouth. Because he had to look at her a certain way, which I, exactly. I, I wondered, like, okay, is she doing that intentionally to test him? Or is mm-hmm. he just seeing it and happens to go like, you know?
1: It's a really good question. Yeah, we don't know. No, you're totally right, because it's clear when he starts telling his story, he's kind of like, hey, you remind me of someone.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's very weird because it because if you read it the one way of her testing him, I'm just like, well, that's not fair. Like that's that's not fair. He has not broken his promise yet. Why are you testing him now? But mm-hmm. at the same time, again, she gave you very specific instructions. One
1: thing I told you to do. One thing. Yeah,
0: exactly. Like it's it's it's. it's all right, everybody has to feed the Mogwai after midnight, so to speak. Yes and exactly. and the the and this is when the room changes tone and color oh, as so he is as a he is
1: whole transformation mm-hmm.
0: yeah. again yeah. if you're ad on that set there are several moving parts in this scene yeah. alone and you yeah. are having to coordinate that on any given day thankfully I, you are in a studio if you were on location this would be a fucking nightmare
1: I think this is just like a master class in transformation using mm-hmm. practical effects. It's yeah. just amazing what they do. Mm-hmm. Her look changes, the lighting, the blue light, the ice comes in, the whole environment changes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Agreed. Really amazing. Yeah,
0: um, and this is when he goes like, you know, it's funny. You just right now, you reminded me of a vampire ghost I saw one time. <laughs> and that's when the the yeah. shit hits the fan. Yep. Oof, oof.
1: Yeah. So Ugh. then she's and and then once again though you think she might actually kill him right then but then she's basically like look we have these children somebody has to raise them so I'm not gonna
2: kill you Oh
0: she says though if you if you if they if they have any reason to be upset with you you will be yeah. treated as you deserve
2: Yeah oof
0: oof Yeah and then does yeah. the same thing again where it looks like she's floating but no she's really running fast out that door.
1: Yeah and then and then yeah that last shot I love that last mm-hmm. shot with the shoes where he puts her shoes out and they kind of disappear in the snow and you don't know mm-hmm. did she take them or are they just buried in the snow or we don't know that, it's a wonderful last shot
0: That's that's a really good magic trick right there from a visual standpoint and it's just a matter of blocking and execution of the item in there and like I I, I love how it's sort of like what your mind is going to see or what do you want to take out of it because uh, I saw it uh, at one point as the snow covered it up. The second yeah. time I watched it, I'm like, maybe she took them.
1: They disappear. They kind of look like they disappear. Like she came and got them. Yeah, it, yeah. It,
0: it's almost like maybe he took out a certain number of frames to fool us, but it still felt seamless. I don't know how he did it. Like I, I genuinely don't know. It's 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 it looks like a magic trick. It it does look it does. like yeah. Um, and the I, I like the whole idea of. The complication of a relationship that's dissolved with ambiguity. Mm. Uh, it's definitely obviously she's pissed because she broke it. That could because he broke the one rule, but yeah. it's still left on this note of uncertainty. She might
1: come back. Yeah, I, I get like she might come back. Yeah, you know? like she did once, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um. Who knows? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. I. I actually always find that, like a short story, the best short stories always have that very clever stinger at the end, mm-hmm. right? Like a yeah. good short story always ends with a couple of great sentences at the end. And that's when you're like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he does this too with those last images. What a great last image.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, um, and a- ending imagery fascinates me because it usually will sum- summarize the film whether you want it to or not and i feel like this is you're right this is a very good example of what an image does each of, actually frankly each of the ending images in this film yes, for each it's story genius. yeah
1: no, no, i know the fourth one you want to talk about but well, they all
0: do it well yeah. well the one we're about to talk about next though too also yes. carries that same uh, that same genius and i think it mm-hmm. i think it is a testament to like to to understanding that these are short stories and it's not it's not strictly plot motivated. It's idea motivated. Each of these is carrying an idea and not necessarily ending the plot. Um, and there is, uh, which we'll talk about later, the idea of uncertainty uh, that, that, uh, that, and grief that permeates mm-hmm. each of these stories. Each story mm-hmm. has grief yes. attached to they it. Do. Um, and they do. They do. Once
1: and, things were great and now they're not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we're
0: given an intermission and then we're brought yes. into hoichi the earless. Uh, yes, yes. So this yes. is this this story is of all the stories in here this is the one that is the most popular or at yes. least the most well known. Children know this longest, story. Yeah. It's the
1: longest story too. Yeah. And then and this is like I said because it's this is like the Trojan horse story mm-hmm. kind of, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of it's like that in that it's kind of Referring back to olden days. Anyway, yes. So we have a, once again, the kind of stylized nature of everything, right? So very Mm. stylized battle scene and very interesting to see how he kind of combines 2D and 3D in telling this war story, right? Right. You have kind of the scrolls that are very 2D and then you have the 3D, very stylized battle scenes. And he's juxtaposing Um, in
0: the edit uh, the stage bound footage with, it's really one of the few location shots uh, yes. or scenes in this film is uh is this section for the Denura um, landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh the battle itself is portrayed on stage but he is intercutting mm-hmm. with fo- live footage from the from yes, the location.
2: Like Denura the, like the
0: crabs. Mm-hmm. Yep, ghost crabs. <laughs> ghost crabs motherfucker ghost crabs. Ghost Mr. Crabs. Um and yeah the the blocking here is fascinating and there is a there was a piece that he discussed that uh prince discussed in terms of how this uh thing was produced uh he is doing a lot of uh things with movement where the camera is not moving or the the thing is not moving but the camera is moving and it connotes movement of the boats that they are on he is finding workarounds yeah. uh yep. for 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 this idea and i i I like how it is almost, it's almost like in this scene, most explicitly you are treated to a storybook tale. This is yes. a story book tale. Like, let me tell you about the great battle of the exactly. Den- Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, almost like uh, the 3d scenes almost feel like a little bit like a Kabuki play or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of on a stage, but yep. it's very stylized. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So then, um, Uh, So there are so many dead souls in this area that there are all these ghosts, angry ghosts. And to calm these angry ghosts, a Buddhist temple was Mm -hmm. built on this site. Yeah, and Hoichi essentially starts living in this temple. It's just because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really have anywhere else to go. So you, the, the you, priest... you
0: you talked about uh, uh, the idea of the film maybe like intimating he's a Buddhist. I didn't get yeah. that personally, but okay. I I okay. could I could see yeah. how that it's uh, unclear. Assumed... It's yeah, unclear. he's just there. He's just Ho Chi. He's just, he's just he's chilling. Just He's just yeah, shown... and
1: so the, in the book, right, the priest just likes his music. And so he lets them live there for the price of kind of playing music for him occasionally. Mm-hmm. That's
0: yeah. Kind of no. The
1: deal that they have. That's and a... then we're always seeing these red streamers all around. Once mm-hmm. again, red equals Tyra. They're the ones who's lost, right? Yeah. Um, and there's even like a scene intercut in here with like a body washing up on the shore. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which no, it's not really dealt with. To be honest, I I don't know if they just wanted to do that to kind of add to the spookiness.
0: That really that sure. that that through line is fat. I would have trimmed, but I don't want to tell Kobayashi what to do. Um, I I I I would. I didn't. We we don't have. I don't think Criterion gives you access even on the Blu-ray because I only watched this on the channel. I don't know mm-hmm. if it gives you access to the 161-minute cut, but I wonder if that's something that he maybe trims in order to get it down to the mm-hmm. to the to the um, uh, time length he was trying to get it at before he finally took out right. the entirety of the Woman in the Snow. Um, right, right, right. But uh, question. it's yeah. uh, but anyway, regardless though, yeah, it is a through line. It, it it sort of sets up that something's wrong, but it's not.
1: Yeah, maybe it's just kind of just you know these are haunted waters and they continue to be haunted. It, and, it
0: gives you know. it gives people who are either observant of the temple or observant of the scene the chance to give the whole. The whole, like, uh, oh, I, I actually, it, it says, must have been the sea ghosts again. I saw the exactly. will o the Wisp last night. Like yeah. that. So, yeah, it gives us a minute to do the dialogue of, like, there's g- 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 ghosts. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Yeah. But- so... Then we have basically, right, the the Tyra Lord comes. Uh, so in the book, they specifically say it was a hot night mm-hmm. and the priest had gone away to do like a funeral or something. Mm-hmm. And so it was a hot night. So Hoichi just kind of sits on his patio there because it's a little bit cooler. Yes. Um, and it's because he's out there and he's by himself. Yeah. The Tyra Lord
0: ghost appears. And and his, he, his approach is shot in such a traditionally modernist way. That we perceive uh, a POV shot in a horror film today, uh, yeah. the 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 movement and intent is so strikingly similar to stuff you see like literally to this minute, and it's accompanied by the sound of these rattling chains. Yeah, 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 like, so yeah. Like,
1: yeah. A little bit like a Jalo film or something, right? Where we're mm-hmm. kind of panning in with this Lord. Anyway, yes, okay, so. Um, So basically what happens is the Lord kind of guides him uh, to this magical blue gate. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's not a real gate. This is all fake, right? Mm -hmm. So blue gate, he goes to the blue gate. And of course, all the Tide of our Lords and the the dead emperor and everything are there. Mm -hmm. And they ask him to play uh, the, the, basically sing to them about the Danora battle. Yes,
0: yes. These spirits, much like... Uh, people stuck in 80s nostalgia want their recounted stories every yes. fucking day. Even uh, though they
1: lost, by the way, which is weird. Yeah. Why would you want to keep hearing about how you lost and died?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's like people that, but... worshiping the Super Mario Brothers movie from 1993 for no reason on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you want to so... obsess over the thing that failed?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Mm. Anyway, um, so, yes, so he, he sings and then, the, you know, he gets taken back to the temple. And and, and he's not so bad. By, by the way, he's kind of everyone's looking around for him. Have you seen Hoichi? No, don't see him. And then he just kind of magically oh, returns. Not
0: only that, this priest goes like, oh, that Hoichi, he's such a he's such an irresponsible little brat. I, I, and the
1: priest, by the way, another one of my favorites, Takashi Shimura. Uh, um, I think I mentioned him a couple of Episodes ago about uh, Ikiru is a wonderful Kurosawa film. I was he's referring
0: amazing. to him this whole time as Japanese Donald Pleasants because he just oh. reminds me of a of a, <laughs> of a guy who's doing like you idiots. He's evil. This is evil right here. Yeah, that's um, tr- I saw him six
2: times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh
1: No, that's true. I, I didn't really pick up on that, but yeah, he's great. He's done a couple of great noir films with Kurosawa, so I definitely uh suggest seeking him out. Great actor. Anyway, okay, so um, so Hoichi, yeah. So then. Um, the ghost returns again the next night. Mm-hmm. And um, I like how that shot where they're kind of showing the passage of time with the incense burning and you're just seeing the incense burning and burning and burning and, burning and he's still not back. And
0: uh, um, th- there's something that the ghost does each time where uh, the first time he appears as a solid, uh, a solid figure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then the second one, he becomes more transparent Fading And, and be- yeah. because Ho Chi's blind. Yeah, he's the ghost. Starts to realize he doesn't need to put in he as much effort. He need to do
1: all the effects. You're right. That's such a good
2: point. I missed oh, that. You're oh, totally cool. right. He oh cool! Oh cool! I can get anymore. I can give yeah. the
0: i can I can give my uh, i can I can give my real world engine a break and <laughs> just enjoy <laughs> being a ghost again.
1: That's hilarious. Yes. So. Night after night, he's being, you know, called away. Uh, meanwhile, there is that funeral for the squid fisherman who mm-hmm. had washed up ashore.
2: All right. Um, and squid boy.
1: kind of, you know, he's acting weird. He's sleeping days. And, you mm-hmm. know, the kind of like, Where are you going? What's happening? And of course, Hoichi is a terrible liar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's also so scared priest, out of his wits, He's really
1: scared. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But he. No, they're ghosts, right? He's blind, so he doesn't really know. He just mm-hmm. thought like this high lord had invited him to go play for them. So, yeah,
0: exactly. You know. He's like, no, um, you don't understand. I'm playing for I'm playing for experience, not for money. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yep. Um, so the priest, being naturally suspicious, has him followed by the comic relief of the movie. Our two kind of servants of the temple who are just kind of like you know you can you can hear the kind of. Scooby Doo sounds yeah. while they're running around. They're the
0: right? Edward Cops of this uh, of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, yep. And so, uh, yeah, they yeah.
1: we so they see Hoichi's slippers, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the rest of the stuff that's there that we are showed in the film is not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all we see are the slippers, and then they see he's performing, and then I love all these effects with those like ghost lanterns and how mm-hmm. the ghosts come and go and fade at the end of the story.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and then, you know, so they, they find him mm. and they kind of drag him home because he doesn't want to he's like, Hey, I'm playing for all these lords. You can't just like drag me away from here. That
0: revelation is so well well edited. It is so well edited and it it ties in tandem with him giving this full performance of the Battle of Denora that is just so like um a fool it fools you into grandeur. And the way it pulls you under the rug with that revelation is just so lovely. We we already know something's wrong, right? But exactly. it's still it's still the abrasiveness of the reality of like he's not going to anywhere special. He's literally going to a graveyard, which is so fucking like unsettling.
2: Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah.
0: So
1: then, yeah. So the priest kind of explained to him, um, "You've actually just been playing in the cemetery, mm-hmm. um, and keep in mind this cemetery doesn't really even have the bodies, right? Because all the people they they've drowned in the ocean. So yeah, they really have their bodies there, but it, anyway, they built the cemetery. So they've been in a cemetery. You're in danger
2: mm-hmm.
1: that you know these ghosts mean to take you over to the other side, right? Like yep. that's their eventual goal. Is, mm-hmm. You're gonna yeah. have to go with them permanently. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna
0: have to. You're gonna have to be an uh, on the road entertainer for eternity." and no pay you're getting nothing but credits on IMDB um yeah no it's uh uh that also like the uh this is when we get the whole uh the, the painting situation, which I did uh, not realize that this is, was a proper defense against ghosts, but that's, it's an interesting idea. Go,
1: yeah. So it's, it's, it's the heart sutra that mm-hmm. they're basically writing on him in characters. So beautiful, right. There are just so many images from that scene that are mm-hmm. just stunning. Yeah. Um, and that is something, like I said, you know, you don't get that in the story. Like the story's like, yep. And then they wrote some characters on his body and you're like, you don't really fully appreciate what that means and what it looks like. And,
0: and in a wide shot, we are we are told by the priest and asked now did you paint every part of him? Yeah, I know, right? And Oops. you forgot to paint the ears. How?
1: <laughs> yeah. So basically there's magic in these scriptures yeah. in that when you're coded in scriptures, the ghost can't see you.
0: Yeah, yeah. But again,
1: uh, so they basically say you need to stay really still and really quiet when mm-hmm. the ghost arrives.
0: Yeah.
1: The ghost isn't gonna see you, so don't do anything. Just sit there.
0: Yeah. And that's when the samurai comes in and goes, Oh Ho Chi, here for your next performance. <gasps>
2: what? <laughs> He's not see here. Ears. But I, I only must see ears. I
0: must return with Ho Chi as much of him yeah. as remains. Yep. And Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. I challenge your ear yeah. removal. I know. And raise well, we you quite hear,
1: on. We didn't get to hear stuck in the middle with you, but That uh... is true,
0: and Michael Madsen wasn't drinking out of a fast food drink, but <laughs> I think that this ear ripping off scene yeah. is yeah. the most brutal fucking thing I have ever seen in a film pre nineteen sixty eight.
1: Oh, we're gonna see some more. We're gonna. Oof. I'm gonna show you some more. Yeah, mm. the, you know, Japanese were not shy of kind of body horror. They the, they they show a lot of it. Yeah, the,
0: this and the way it's edited, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. fake. Uh, no, it doesn't. I, obviously, you can tell where the lines are, but the yeah. editing is so fast paced that the first time I watched it, I was not prepared for how abrasive it was. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is just a very Oh god, it's it's so great, and Donkai, you fucking idiot! You you should have painted the fucking ears, god damn it!
1: Yeah, Ugh. yeah. So poor kid, but anyway, um, yeah. So there's a lot of blood, you know. Mm-hmm. But but but. It's kind of a happy ending in that he recovers. Everybody now wants to come see him. Right. And he becomes a very wealthy man through his performances and he donates his money to the temple.
0: Right. Although that final re- that that first request amid his newfound fame, uh cuz these lords say uh, the the communic or the the messenger basically says my lord has heard the story of this blind binwa player and the events that happened to him and yes uh Yasaku and uh Mas- Mosaku uh literally say that they cannot tell whether those that have come over the mountain to hear them are ghosts or not and i wrote a note that ho chi's bravery extends off to the idea that he's still going to walk into that unknown and there is this idea because we don't fully see uh we 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 are we are we are we have black hair from the back again are they ghosts That he's playing for are the real people. It's intimated that they're real people. But still... I think so. There's I think an,
1: so. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't know. There's How'd a, he know?
0: Yeah. There's an uncertainty because we have already been treated yeah, to this tom, <laughs> to the tomfoolery of these ghosts. Yeah. 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 That's true. And that's then, true. And then we leave ancient times and hard cut right away into 1900, the age of innovation. Yeah, but
1: then we go back again. Don't worry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, again. yeah,
0: yeah, Don't so, worry. This, yeah. this ain't going to be a 1900s film anymore. Let me tell you, this is just, it's one tease for the modern audience. Um, yeah, yeah we're... so
1: Prince talks about the kind of time elements floating into each other here, and there's this kind of a lot of imagery of clocks being kind of portals mm-hmm. in time. Yeah. And, um, but the kind of meditation on why do some of the stories remain fin- unfinished, and and Prince is kind of speculating that, you know, the author we see in those first few scenes in the modern era uh, – Maybe they're Lufcadio Hearn. Who knows? Right? Yeah. But there's kind of the author themselves.
0: Right. Uh, um, but we are treated to, it's literally like an author going like, I bet you're wondering why none of these stories have a definitive ending. Um, and uh, well, I'm going to give in an example of one. Let's take you back to the Tenwa era, 220 yep. years before I'm yep. writing this. Uh, yep. And we see a lord and his entourage coming to take yep. the regular visit of a village.
2: Yep.
0: And they stop at a tea house. Yep. And one of the attendants gets up to go get tea, which will be the, uh, the first of many mistakes he I think makes they're at in a his castle. life.
1: I think they're at a castle. He goes to get water. Yeah. And he's sitting out there in the castle. Anyway, yes. So the, but, the, but the point is that when he looks into the bowl... There's a person there, there, and
0: not just a person, but a certain per, but a person giving him some sexy eyes. They're going like, "Hey, oh, that big boy!" So
1: flirtatious, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Very flirtatious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs>
0: this is no ordinary love.
1: Yeah so Prince says the face in the tea is a beguiling feminine flirtatious with a motivation unknown.
0: Yeah. He tr- he tries to get rid of it, and tries yep. dunking the water out, no,
1: nothing's yep. working. Sexy eyes are still he just there.
0: Drinks
2: it.
1: Yeah. yeah, finally just drinks it, which mm-hmm. I don't know if that was advisable, you know.
0: It's not. No. You just run. You just run. You could find water elsewhere.
1: I don't need water right now. No, no,
0: no, it's fine. Uh, You know, you can go for a day without water at least. Um, But yeah, no. And then we cut to later in the Lord's quarters and the attendant Mm -hmm. second eye is... uh, gets it gets yep. gets the apparition of this spirit
1: he, he's back he's back mm-hmm. and then uh yeah now the reflection actually has more corporeal form and yeah. kind of lunges at him and oh and shi- kind of appears and disappears
0: oh and, yeah. Henai shikibu, you crazy yep. crazy ghost you yeah. uh god yeah shikibu is uh is uh, the most flamboyant spirit here, and I appreciate (laughs) flamboyancy. Maybe it's one of the reasons why I love this segment, too, is because there is a... I do like a flamboyant nature when attached to my horror, and this is certainly one of them. Yeah, Um, yeah, Yeah. and uh, he does deal him a a fatal-ish blow. uh, Looks
1: like it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks like the ghost is hit, and he kind of runs away. Yeah.
0: Um... And then
1: he calls calls everybody to arms, but nobody sees anybody, so they... Eventually, he's kind of mocked.
0: Geez, second eye, you're losing it, motherfucker! Yeah. God damn it! I was asleep, you son of a bitch.
1: And then they—he's they, so bad at his job, they give him the night off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Why don't you go home? Uh, uh, Whatever, you can use one of your call-out times uh, to just take a breath and whatnot. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and that
1: doesn't help because mm-hmm. when he's at home, three mm-hmm. more visitors arrive.
0: Oh, not just not just three visitors, but three fabulous uh, garbed warriors, each in different colors. Uh, colors that that yeah. would definitely hit the Paris fashion lines later on down the line. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, and uh, yeah. yes, these co- uh, these characters are introduced. And the way the camera moves, I thought this was amazing. Center, right, then left. Not going down a uh, a left to uh, right la- range. Mm-hmm. We start off mm-hmm. in the center and then flip Mm -hmm. around uh and
1: how you would look though right like if you're actually looking at something we're always looking to the center. That's where our eyes are trained. Right? Yeah,
0: and, and uh, then we kind
1: of look to the sides, right? Yeah. So and, normally, like when you and I are just walking around, we're not always looking left to right. No, right? no. Plus, by the way, Japanese read right to left. So
0: mm-hmm. now I but my anyway. my big question yeah. is, why are these guys color coded to look like Alvin and the Chipmunks? And my answer is, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> because they literally have Maybe the same Alvin color and scheme. The
1: Chipmunks. And and the Chipmunks got it from them.
0: Oh, oh, oh. Ross Bagdasarian was a Quite On fan. I understand. now. You know, I do. Every oh. time I do hear Christmas time is here, I think about all the Japanese ghost stories. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so uh, the retainers
1: so sap- of the, the ghost. Yeah. He's going to come back. He got injured. He's, he's coming back to
0: avenge his injury. So
1: there's our vengeful ghost coming mm. back again.
0: Ooh, and we are treated in this fight scene because he's like, fuck this. I'm going to fight these ghosts. Yep we are treated to this idea of going backward as you're lunging forward. Yep. We are treated to Dutch angles, uh, to which Stephen Prince was like, (gasps) um, and, uh, (laughs) and we also have slow motion and it's slow motion that looks fucking pristine because when you look at slow motion in a film from the seventies, eighties, Early on, it's cheesy. cheesy. The frames are slowed down to such an uh, absurd rate. Like I was rewatching some of the Friday the Thirteenth movies this week, and uh, that that first like uh, there's several slowdown sequences that just. Stop, 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 stop. This one is just like fluid motion. It is beautiful. Frame rate yeah. was done exactly and it's to kind of
1: The retainers are also like appearing and disappearing, right? Mm-hmm. That once again, that kind of uncanny, unsettling nature that's been a theme through all of these stories, yes, ex- right? Ex- that's exactly. just happening all over the place. And he thinks he kills the retainers and then they come back. And essentially he goes crazy, right? Like he's mm-hmm. just kind of like, what is happening here? Yeah. <laughs> and that's when all of a sudden- End of story.
0: <laughs> I I love a big old fuck you, <laughs> and this was a great one. Uh, yeah, he goes. We
1: don't know what happened. He's fighting these ghosts. He's going crazy, but we don't really know what happened. He goes. Because... I can. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, he he says I can imagine several possible endings, but none of them yeah. will leave you satisfied. I'll just yeah. leave it to your imagination to to you to imagine for yourself the best mm-hmm. ending to a story about a man to swallow uh, who swallowed another's soul.
1: I know, what does that even mean? How cool is that? A man who swallows another
2: soul? Yeah, wow. And the
0: pu- but this doesn't matter because the publisher's got to see this author because uh, it's New Year's got to greet him nicely. Uh, the mm-hmm. madam lets him in and whatnot and uh, mm-hmm. trying to get settled when all of a sudden the madam mm-hmm. screams. Mm-hmm. And the publisher goes to see what's going on and she runs away. He mm-hmm. looks in on a big water jar where he too <laughs> is repelled and then we look inside that water jar and the author is trapped. Mm-hmm. Now, Stephen Prince says that this guy is beckoning us to join the same world he now inhabits. I took it as I'm stuck. Get me the fuck out of here. But also I'm trapped in another world where I move very slowly. I think it could go either way. But he's basically trapped in a quiet on of his own making. Yeah. Uh, and the last image of a cup tipped over. The uh, It's empty. The end. Uh, i I it's a little bit
1: like you know those stories where like the 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 person who's writing about serial killers becomes a serial killer or whatever like that's kind of what's happening here right like he's so deeply enmeshed in the world of ghosts that he kind of becomes one
0: yes exactly and 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 the reason i this isn't my favorite of the stories by any stretch but the out the wraparound to it i love the concept as it pertains to being a filmmaker and one who is getting sucked into their own world? I mm-hmm. love the concept. I love the idea of it, and I love how sincere it feels while being lavish. Because uh, this is a lavish idea. It's not about like the external forces. It's more about it, the idea. The concept itself is lavished because it is very theatrically presented. Um, it's it's over the top, but it manages to convey a very strong idea without beating you over the head with it. Um, it's um, And I think it also helps that it, you don't hear the author going,
1: help, help. I, I'll be honest. The first couple of times I saw this movie, I didn't really get it.
0: Mm, it's
1: mm. like, what happened? Yeah, no. You know, it took me a few watches to actually figure out what had happened. Because we don't really see the author much in the beginning or you're not really paying attention, right? You're kind of like, okay, yeah, there's a guy there. But I didn't really pay attention to like, what he looks like or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So... I, yeah. I
0: I I looked at it from moment one as this idea of metacontextualization without without an annoyance attached to it, and it and I think that it has a strong bearing on how to provide unity by the very last frame of this uh, movie at large to a an anthology of sorts. I think in order to do that, we have to get through the the expositional narration about like not all stories have an ending but it it, yeah. it justifies that beginning speech that last image exactly. justifies the yeah. speech I,
1: yeah it's almost like too clever that's why I think I just kind of missed it the first mm, couple I was yeah. like wait what happened
0: well, I appre- and you get you
1: do get really drawn into that the story in the story right mm-hmm. it, I, like I got really into that like oh the painters are all flying around yeah
0: like, wait what happened and that's <laughs> why I like the fuck you of just going like, nope <laughs> don't get that exactly. You didn't listen to the first part so now you're puni- now your punishment is being surprised. Uh so yeah that's the end of the film. Uh and uh we we can't leave here without talking about how this film came to us in its final form down the line. Uh this this was like this is sort of heart-wrenching to read considering what you consider Cannes Film Festival to be not realizing that it is a, is an industry like any other one. And it has things it's trying to do to maintain a structure. Um, so the AD, uh, interview, uh, um, talked a lot about this on criterion. Um, this film, uh, uh, as Kobayashi envisioned is an 183 minute one. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
0: Parts of it are taken out against his will, and it is a result of external demands that he, that couldn't be disregarded. And it has to do with a strict policy at Cannes Film Festival that year of not screening films over two hours long. Which, when you hear the word Cannes Film Festival, you don't think two hours only. You think whatever the artist wants. Um, and Kobayashi realized he couldn't use the original cut. He cuts it down to two hours. He couldn't cut it down to two hours initially, but he made it as short as he could, resulting in this 161-minute cut that was taken to Cannes. They tried to negotiate with it, and Cannes said, "Uh uh-uh. So he reluctantly removes the woman in the snow on top of all the other cuts he's made to bring it down to about 125 minutes, which is slightly above the two-hour limit. Uh, And after that plays he gets invita- invitations to screen the complete film uh, following that and screens the 161 minute version which becomes the general version for foreign markets uh, additionally the two hour cut also falls into this the 161 minute version as noted by the AD was easier to sell in Japan at this point uh, the hundred, but but what comes interesting is that three years before the death of Kobayashi, he began trying to look for the negative and Toho did not give him a clear answer. And you'd think at first, well, the studio just doesn't want to deal with that. No, there is a genuine reason for this, uh, any studio and its archives, uh, unfortunately probably does not take as strict and detailed an inventory as you'd like. There is stuff that is stuck in archives to this very minute that people still haven't documented because it is costly to look through all of those elements. And that's why even if we do have London After Midnight in some random film lab in the world somewhere, well, you got to give them a bajillion dollars to look through each and every one of those film cans because it is a job that requires payment for services. It's not all volunteer based. So, The uh, AD went to a friend at Toho, Kiji Yabuki, uh, to find the can cut and the complete cut. And Yabuki was well-known at the studio, so Yabuki was just like, I'm on it, chief. And uh, he goes out there and looks into it rather quickly. And in an inventory list, he found an entry for the can cut, and it was a dupe negative. They acquired that first. It had been stored for about 30 years. Uh, there was a very big concern for the useful shelf life of that negative mm. and color fading, so digital repair had to take effect. Uh, and Toho, when they finally realized what they had, said, oh yeah, we'll pay for that restoration, um, which is the exact opposite of what Warner Brothers says about anything, <laughs> uh, and uh, or any other studio, period. Uh, Kobayashi, though, was in bed rest at home, so he was not mm. traveling around or supervising this restoration, but was asked to come to the studio to review it, and he was satisfied with that restoration. But the OG cut was still not found. Kobayashi, unfortunately, passes away. Two years after his death, uh, the original cut is discovered. What happened was Toho was moving its studio. So all the storage (laughs) was taken out. And, in a mountain of film can, uh, and there was a mountain of film cans that were left off of inventory li- lists. Labels were then checked closely, and the original cut was found. So they rushed it, rushed it to a Magica post house, uh, and it was revealed to be the master positive. Digital restoration begins. They replaced parts of this with the can cut to fill out the length, and thankfully it filled down to the length of the original soundtrack, so it's a near-perfect restoration with little uh, need to alter and tweak. So that's a very, very fortuitous and lucky film yeah. restoration story. Um, I will say, having seen this three-hour cut, the only reason I would want to watch any other shorter cut would be purely out of curiosity. I, yep. don't not, I do not think that I would feel uh, that any of the other cuts would be any, anywhere better. because of how rich and experienced this film feels Rash.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally, I I watched this. I'm like six out of five. No. No, no notes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this (laughs) is truly one of the best Japanese movies ever been made. And Mm -hmm. one of the best movies ever made. It's, it's fantastic.
0: And I found it interesting that this film did better abroad than, uh, in its own country. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways that creates a stepping stone for a lot of elements of international cinema, but I think it's also it's because of it being nominated for an Academy Award too. It sets the standard for ghost stories from Japan having mm-hmm. some kind of cachet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the it's not the big big uh, right. breaker, but it is definitely a huge stepping stone into the idea Absolutely. of Japanese appearance. Th- yeah, yeah, the
1: ideas, the images. Like I said, they've been around for hundreds of years, um, and it's just you know Ring Ringu hit big, mm-hmm. but yeah. they've been building up building up, building up until then. Well, and as so. we're
0: going to talk about more as we keep going along with these ghost stories, quite on is an example of how these ideas carry themselves, maybe not in the most overt horror fashion, but I, I would argue that this is a terror film and not a horror film. This is a, mm-hmm. it's in the way Val Luton films are described. Like this instills mm-hmm. dread. This story, these stories instill yeah. dread. They do not mm-hmm. terrify me. The most horrifying sequences in this film are, are, in, ears. are in our ears and mm-hmm. arguably the the teacup or the the not yeah. the teacup the the water the water jar uh yeah. because that is horrifying to be trapped yes. in a, a water jar um yeah. and but everything else is dread fueled this is filled by atmosphere and mood uh yes. and in a sense it 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 is an example of how you can point to the uh illogic of any horror fan downing on slower forms of horror or art house horror uh, and claiming that it's not true horror. That's a ridiculous statement or concept Mm -hmm. to make. And consequently, it also manages to instill the idea that horror itself is not a genre to be dismissed into a garbage can. Because if right. that were the case, then har- uh, then uh *Quaidon* would not have been nominated for a foreign language Oscar right. at all. Yes. At all. They would have been like, Agreed. now there's ghosts in here, can't accept it. Nope, we're the Academy, we don't give a shit. No, the Academy, for its credit, did see the value in this piece, regardless of the genre it was intended to be. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: That's a... Uh- amazing film so i hope everybody gets a chance to see it in one form or another it's on the criterion channel streaming if you have that you can also buy the disc mm-hmm. um and so, uh, yeah it's a great film
0: and if you do happen to have hbo max it is available on that as well ah, because of the good. there's a criterion there's a lot uh, of criterion on yeah HBO there's an arrangement yeah. they have with it yeah. but rashmi great. thank you so much for bringing quite on here now we yeah. need to know yeah. what are we talking yeah. about next time what what other ghosts so, do you
1: have in mind yeah we, we have a lot of ghosts lined up so next week's Ghost of the week. <laughs> Our next, <laughs> next episode goes to the ghost of the ghost of the week. Anyway, uh, we're going back to black and white, but kind of similar period, um, and we're going to talk about Kuro Neko which is trans the translation in English is black cat, um, and Ooh. it's more. Or Vengeful Ghosts.
0: Is Boris Karloff um, and Bela Lugosi running around this film, too? No, ah, to damn it, it. But there is
1: a lot of weirdness. We're going to get into some weirdness. Nice, nice. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so, yeah, great, great film. We get to meet a new director uh, that we haven't talked about, Kaneto Shindo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually quite famous for Japanese horror because there are two of his films that are uh, fall into that bucket. So mm. we'll be covering both of them, but we'll start with Kuroneko. So, yeah, so that's what's on tap for next time.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you, Rashmi, as always, for this lovely subject you've brought to the show. And thank you so much for bringing Don into the stratosphere. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be appreciating Don as they access it because it is such a treat to experience. And watch it all the way through. Don't watch it in chunks, guys. Watch this all the way through. It is definitely worth it that investment in time. And that's going to wrap it up for this uh, presentation of Kawaii, a look at Japanese horror through the ages. Dig back into our previous discussions. Uh, uh, Learn a little bit more about A Page of Madness, about Invisible Men that Appear. Uh, Learn about Mothra everybody needs to know about Mothra so dig back to those previous discussions and as always with YBR Presents be sure to check back into our previous uh, series uh, we have have a Hitchcock series we have a T- Jacques Tati series there's plenty of stuff you can listen to here on the YBR Presents feed uh, and uh, stay tuned as we continue our journey down the the, 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 the the path of the spirit world but until all of that and until next time folks good night